Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, interdimensional space-traveling, all-seeing, all-knowing god entity, and this is my counterpart, Scott Daly. Scott! Destination. Agreement. Trajectory. Agreement. Toddler murder? A concern. Confident. Yes, Matt, as you said, this is the one and only podcast where you, a worm expert, guide me, a first-time reader, through Wild Bo's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between as I inspect, interpret, and yes, even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, we are covering the second half of Arc 26, Sting, which takes place from chapter 26.6 through, uh, through the end of it, four whole chapters, and, uh, this is this is quite quite an end, Matt. We're kind of moving past the second arc of Worm, and I mean arc in the in the structural definition, not in the Worm division uh, definition, and moving into that third arc proper. This is this is the end. This is the transition into that third arc of the story. We're here now, and things things are getting getting crazy. Yep, we we reveal almost all of the the mysteries that we had hanging. We put a nice little bow on the Slaughterhouse a lot, a.k.a. Slaughterhouse 9000, as some call it, um, yeah, arc. The wrong people. Yep. And, uh, and we're, we're obviously sliding into some kind of conclusion. Yeah, there's, like, I, I can't believe how much there is in these four chapters. I think we divided this thing up, and we said, you know, we would do, I think, six of the chapters in the first half of this, and we'd do four in the second, and that way... Uh, we would kind of front load the episode and the first one would be a little longer and the second one would be not so long. And then um, then we wrote the script for this for this episode and somehow it is even longer than the last one. Yeah. Somehow, somehow we have more to talk about in these four chapters than almost anything else we've done so far. Yeah, I intentionally sort of made the call that we would put the put more chapters in the first in the first episode because... I knew that I would want to talk about the last chapter of this arc a huge amount. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I, you know, I'm somebody who, whose favorite anything changes from day to day, but, um, I think this might be my favorite interlude. Um, and, and I, I think I've reread it more than any other part of the story. I think I reread it essentially like four or five times this week in preparation <laughs> for the podcast, which is yeah. not a small feat because it's like 10,000 words or something. Yeah, it's a long one. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's great. I can't wait to talk about it. I am more nervous to talk about it than I have been anything else we've done so far. Um, it, it's crazy. It's intimidating. There's so much going on. There's so much to say. And yet, it's hard to find a place to start. <laughs> yeah. But we will yeah. get into that in a couple hours when we get to that chapter. <laughs> That's right. Uh, for now, though, let's, uh, let's talk about some announcements. Just a reminder that the second quarterly fan art contest is ongoing the theme of dr yamada saves the world artwork is due on wednesday november 22nd by eleven fifty nine p.m central standard time yeah and i forgot to put the link to that in last week's show notes so i'm gonna make sure i do that this week so if you look in the show notes or if you're on the website or on youtube or whatever the link will be there if you want to learn the rules the prizes where you send it to all that stuff it's all there yes and uh, I believe Worm, uh, the uh, the Glowworm Worm Prelude is wrapping up this week, and Worm Two will be beginning in earnest um, 
very soon. I want to say Saturday, that is but I'm the, not 100% sure. That is the day? Okay. Yes, that is good. The day. I've been good. told that that is the day. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Um, we Obviously, I have not read a word of it yet, of course, and I can't, and I know people are talking about it. We have a, a warm two spoilers thread in the Discord chat that I know and I'm certain is probably hugely active, but I can't. Just like the worm one, I can't go in it. Just like the packed one, just like the twig one, there's all these threads on our Discord that I can't go in. But, soon, soon, Scott. Oh, it's, well. It's like Zeno's web serial. The closer you get to the end, the more of it is written. <laughs> we are we are really close, though. We are. This, yeah. this is, we've got five more arcs to go. Yeah. And then, and then we're done with worm. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's going to be weird. Yeah. All right. Let's let's move in yeah. to some some listener comments and questions yeah. and all that. So there was one that I pulled out um from from Regvelas and uh, it was interesting because this user actually spoiled it because they weren't sure if it if it was really uh something that should be talked about yet and I kind of made the call that that I wanted to talk about it. It was just kind of a I guess kind of a minor thing but I really liked it because it wasn't something that I ever got before. There's this almost throwaway beat where uh, uh, Murder Rat nails grew with the full weight of her body, you know, via her claws falling down the stairs. And he gets up from it, and he's just fine. And he makes a, an offhand remark of, of like, oh, I should have broken my ribs. Um, and it never really meant anything to me. I always kind of noticed it, but wondered, like, oh, what does that mean? And then I just moved on. Um, but Regulus points out that uh, it's it seems likely that uh, crawler's power isn't just regeneration it's regeneration with improvements and when Gru was spread out all over the freezer uh, his ribs were splayed open and, and damaged and one of the things that he heals is his ribs and his ribs can are presumably not only healed but uh, improved so that could be why uh, he doesn't break his ibs yeah what a cool little fun beat I mean it's not something that changes the direction of the story it's not something that really matters in any kind of real sense but I think it shows the commitment to creating the world and keeping the world firmly planted in reality although it is an alternate reality from our, our own um, stuff like that doesn't matter but it's, it's been thought out and it's it's in there for you yeah it's a fun detail it's a fun it, I don't know if I want to call it an Easter egg because I feel like I could have potentially gotten it you know yeah but, uh, yeah yeah I don't even really yeah. know what Easter egg means anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I don't either. Okay, so yeah, let's uh, let's get to it, Scott. Beat yeah, by we beat. We got a lot. We got a lot to do, so we're gonna have to move on. Yeah, right into that beat by beat. That's right. Twenty six dot six, and we are picking up from the point where Weaver and her motley crew of the n- nine to eleven or so samurai are flying in to Ellisburg on the Pendragon ship. Uh, the strike force consists of a number of heroes and villains that we know well, and Weaver is focusing meditatively, meditatively on her bugs as the ship enters the, the uh, city and is gradually onset by monsters. Yeah, and this is cool. We start like immediately where we left off, and we've got, like you said, our our seven, nine, ten like 13 if you count the dog samurai um like flying directly into the lion's den and i I do i do like this beat um that we we take time like weaver talks about how she's dealing with it and she notices that rachel's dealing with the same 
way by kind of retreating into their power. Um, but we also take the time to circle around to each one of our characters and we see how they're handling things. We see how Chevalier and Defiant are, are talking to each other in low voices. They're, they're planning and strategizing. And it made me wonder, it's like, uh, do you think Defiance let Chevalier know about Dragon yet? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but we see, we see Revel sitting there meditating. We see Tecton and Hoyden just chatting up and, and Perry and Foil kind of affectionately embracing each other. We're, we're going around the room and we're, we're seeing how all these people are, are dealing with the stress and, and we're establishing here that Taylor feels pretty alone. Everyone else is kind of paired off or has their thing and, and Taylor isn't. And it, it, interesting to me is that like, she doesn't see Golem here. She doesn't point out Golem in, in any way. Um, I, I don't know what that means or what that says, but I just it just jumped out at me. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, yeah, but but you're 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 pointing out that this is a this is a good calm before the storm moment, uh, which is important to get at this point. We, we this is something Worm does very well consistently is it grounds you in the characters before it throws you into another chaotic battle thing because if it didn't do that, you just wouldn't care. Um, but right. it, it consistently does a great job at that. I almost wonder if she knows Golem so well that she doesn't even feel the need to check in on him. Yeah, Maybe. you're absolutely right. That, that, yeah. could, that could be it. Yeah. So Weaver does chat with Rachel, though, uh, trying to reopen the connection between them. Rachel admits that she's worried about her dogs back on Earth Gimmel. Yeah, and this is such a really wonderful little beat. It, it's more of that calm before the storm stuff, and it shows, once again, that deep, deep bond between Rachel and Taylor, that it's still here. It's still here, even after the, the years that have gone by, it's still there. And I think it's really easy to read this as Taylor seeing that Rachel is nervous, seeing that Rachel is fidgeting and, and trying to calm her down by distracting her and connecting with her. That's absolutely true. That is part of what she's doing. Taylor even kind of says as much. But if you look back at the other scenes and how Taylor like finishes her descriptions of each of the other members of the team, like she she always finishes with, I, I didn't want to disturb her or, or I didn't want to interject or pairing a foil like there's still some unwritten like tension there because she kind of uh pushed her down that path and then defiant is busy like he take he he's not taking his eyes off the control everyone's busy everyone has their thing and she she's alone so she isn't just reaching out to Rachel for Rachel she's looking for her own kind of distraction she's looking for someone to talk to she's looking for a connection to make and Rachel's the only person she can find it with yeah, and I think we we might actually be calling back to this moment at the beginning of the next chapter when when Golem is is uh, emotionally distraught and finding himself unable to even contemplate reaching out to any of the people around him for help. Um, is this this yeah. basic idea of this isolation between capes and and the masks sort of serving as a barrier between them? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. So she experiences a flashback to sounds that have haunted her in the past, like Gru's gasping in the in the in the freezer, her father's shouting as she kills Tag in front of him. Um, this is triggered by her hearing the monsters damage the metal of the ship. Yeah, yeah, I like this a lot because we we talk about setups a lot on this show. We do because this this story is like riddled with really clever, well done setups, and there are tangible setups where we're literally establishing something so we can use it later. But there's also some kind of more abstract setups, and I think that, that that's what this falls into because at the end of this chapter, Taylor is going to do a thing, uh, a thing that is that is a next step in a certain path that she's been on for a while now. 
And here we're kind of laying the groundwork for those those decisions in, in a very abstract kind of way. We're, we're showing how haunted she is by by the things in her past still, not just her choices, um, because it's, it's not just the choices that she, she takes, but also the places where she perceives she's failed. Um, you know, w- with Brian, she felt that she failed him and failed to protect him. And that's the situation he is with, with the, she remembers the sound that the doctor that's killed by a mannequin makes when, when she hits the ground. These are, these are moments where Taylor feels like either she's made a poor choice or, and it's, ha- it's haunting her or a moment where she's failed. And, and that's kind of setting her up. As being this person who, yes, has grown a lot since we've last seen her, but is still is still driven by this central trauma and this need that will will lead her into some uh, choices, some choices. Yeah, and I think the primary way, and we talked about this last time, in which she has grown is that she's become even more hyper focused on the mission, more more of a soldier, and and this is uh this is a culmination of that of that change. So the ship lands yeah. and a number of monsters are trying to batter their, their way in. The team needs to protect the decoder, which is hacking its way into the portal that Jack used to leave the city. Weaver relays her perspective on the battlefield to her co- cohort and uses bugs to dig at the weak points on the monsters. The heroes form ranks at the sh- ramp entry to the ship and battle the creatures as they attack. Yeah, this is all great. Um, there, there's a reason that that this this protect the thing bias time trope is so often used in in both like stories and and games, and and things like that. And it, I think it's because it works. It it establishes stakes and tension almost instantly, and you can position your characters to be in this no win situation without really having to worry about figuring out how to pull them out of that no win situation because you don't have to beat the thing, you don't have to win, you just have to survive. Um, it's fun. It's interesting. It's always good to see. And I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. And I also want to say that from this point until the end of this arc, I view as a masterclass in ratcheting up tension, which is something I've probably said like three times in the course of this podcast that, that, oh, this arc is a masterclass in ratcheting up tension. But this is the penultimate of that because you're, you, you're essentially, you're putting them in this terrible situation where the, the, these monstrous fantasy creatures are attacking their ship and they quote unquote escape from that into, you know, a tohu bohu nightmare city um, surrounded by the nine. So it, it just goes <laughs> up and up and up. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. I like this moment where Rachel and Golem can't go all out with their powers because both of their powers generate mass from nothing, which makes the ship heavier, which, which is counter to what they want to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. I think, not only does that show the novels like continued adherence to real world limitations of powers for like, we still live in a world with physics. And even if we're breaking it in some ways, it's going to have consequences in others. But I think it also shows that our characters still kind of have a level of hope, even as the, the things mount and it becomes more hopeless. They're, they're still kind of thinking about that return journey or that escape. Um, it's kind of like when in Lord of the Rings, when Sam casually mentions that, that if they, if they, keep the their rations the way they are that they'll still have enough for the journey home it's it's like this moment where like we're still thinking about about that that future and they none of like they kind of know on some level it's a suicide mission but um they don't on some other levels yeah no i I think you're right so the creatures keep digging and melting their way into the ship 
Things get desperate enough that Weaver has to stand side by side with Defiant, knife in hand, and thinks to herself, who knew we'd get to this point, Arms Master? Yes. Uh, I love I love this moment so much. Like, I I would have never seen this coming. Like, the, the, the transformation not only these characters have individually had, but collectively had throughout the course of this book is is fascinating. And I think if a time comes where I do go back and, and reread this story from the beginning... I, I think that's one thing I'm going to be paying extra uh, attention um, to, to that. And I think like it's it's so crazy that we've gotten here, like and, and almost to confirm this, almost to confirm how alike these characters are now, how together these characters are, how in sync these characters are. Um, they're, they're talking about the fact that the portal itself um, isn't a guarantee um, that, that it might not work. And like, people are shocked at that like this isn't a guarantee this might not actually work and and taylor thinks nothing's a guarantee and immediately after that defiance says i never guarantee anything <laughs> um and yeah. then of of course to complete this whole wonderful beat um defiant follows that up with except for a, a select few promises i make to people i love and people i hate and that's awesome <laughs> yeah um I, like <sighs> So Defiant is in this moment, like not only is he connected to Weaver in this way that we can see here, but it's also, this also serves as like a hint into his psyche because he's really, he's really fucked up. He's really angry. He's really heartbroken and he can't stop thinking about Dragon, uh, the people he loves and, and Saint, the people he hates. Um, and, and, and this is not the first time in this chapter we get this, this hint into his state of mind. There's this moment earlier where, where Tecton is observing how long it's going to take for uh, the portal gun to go through and he says four minutes and defiant replies we uh, i think so and it's just like oh my god it's heartbreaking but it's a great subtle window into how he's doing without having to explicitly state it yeah yeah i mean all of this is wonderful and and i think at this point now that we're approaching the end you can probably appreciate why me and a lot of listeners were excited to hear your take on for example arms master when he's first introduced because at the time you know mentally where you are now you kind of want to remember what it felt like to not understand this character and, and to not see that he had this in him um because it, it's such a fun journey you want to remember what that journey was like i know i compared him to a a the tick type type character when i first met him and i mean that that was partially just a wrong read but also partially he just came off kind of weird at first and and like overly like overly confident like over chest puffy type guy and he's just this so this complicated different person now yeah. and it's it's amazing it's like the moments like this make you really realize that that how how much change he's undergone yeah yeah i, I think it's very safe to say that he's one of my favorite characters in the story yeah yeah so at this point, Defiant calls Saint and asks for support from the Azazels, but Saint appears to refuse. Yeah, and and I think this connects into everything that we've been doing with him, with this idea of of how how a mess Defiant is right now, because he's he's suffering with the loss of Dragon, his hatred of Saint, and he's how desperate must he be in this moment to go to Saint and ask for help? How hard? Would that be for Defiant to do? Would Armsmaster have done that? Would Armsmaster have been able to swallow his pride and go to the person that he can't stand and that he hates to to um, 
to ask for help? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, and I think I think we we connect it into that maybe this is part of the promises that he made to, to Dragon. The promises that he 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 guarantees he's gonna 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 keep up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he ends up using the force field that they have on board to buy them some more time, and he asks Dinah to help pare down the options. Uh, and, and she does. So he makes some choices based on what she tells him. And then they make their way through the portal. Yep. And we literally get a moment of tension release as they make, as they're huddling around each other about to finally be overcome. And yes, they're alive. They made it through. And then you're like, oh, wait, no, it's, it's worse. Yeah. It's worse. Yeah. It's, so it's it, always getting worse. So in this new place they're in, I believe it's a, it's a pocket dimension, right? Yeah. I think it's yeah. the same place. That was the same place where, uh, Bonesaw hung out, right? Yeah, I'm never entirely sure. Um, I think you're probably right. Um, I wasn't 100% on that, but I think you're probably right. So Jack starts talking to them using Screamer's power. He says uh, offhandedly that Grey Boy is retrieving Aster, which freaks out everyone, mainly Theo. Uh, inside the pocket dimension, they find some more clones in vats, um, basically another trolley problem distraction put there by Jack. Do they kill the clones or just continue on? And Defiant mentions that they can just collapse the dimension. Yeah, isn't this interesting? So again, like I'm, I'm not going to get into the thing that happens at the end of this chapter just, just yet. But again, we get in a situation where there are seemingly two options. Do you stay and deal with the clones or do you chase after Jack? And Defiant is in the, in the middle of this trolley problem. Defiant kind of comes in and says, no, there's... Uh, th- there's a there's a there's a third option right it's just right we can just do this thing and i think it's interesting that in this moment where we have our character have to make this this trolley problem-esque choice at the end of this chapter that we've established earlier in in the chat that same chapter that sometimes there's a third option that you just haven't thought of yet or hasn't presented itself yet um not saying that that's specifically trying to say anything about the chap about the decision that Taylor makes at the end of this one. But, but I think that's interesting. Like Jack intentionally sets up these choices to where it seems like you have to choose between two things, but he's really just playing with you. And, and that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I myself think that that happens more often in real life than true trolley problems. Usually in real life, you can come up with some kind of clever solution to a problem that clever third option. Yeah, well, because I mean, the, the truth of this is, and I think we're going to get into this a little later, but the truth of this is that that the trolley problem is a thought experiment. It is not something that really exists in any kind of real world scenario. Yeah, um, it's used to discuss how to go through morality and these ethical quandaries. But it's not like it's not real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at this point, Jack starts piping the video from Grey Boy onto the monitors that are in the area. And Weaver recalls that the thing hiding under the tarp back in Killington, the thing that she couldn't even think about, was a Grey Boy victim. Hey, Matt, remember when I said I, I can't imagine what could be so bad that Taylor would not only lie about it to her team, but refuse to to even think about it to herself? Yep. Well, now... Now I know. <laughs> Yay. I know now, and it's awful. Yeah. So, so, and, and this is, we are under, we're coming to understand Grey Boy's power in, in little tiny bits. And we kind of don't want to, um, but, but here we go. 
So Grey Boy is torturing the two PRT officers who are with uh, Purity and and um, the other former Empire eighty eight villains. Calm gradually... the Nazis. What? Calm Sorry. the Nazis. They're the Nazis. Nazis. Yes, the Nazis. And we gradually come to understand that you know he's he's uh we come to understand the nature of his power. So we, we don't see it, but we're hearing what he's doing, and we're having to piece it together. Um, while the heroes are simultaneously scouting the pocket dimension complex. So it's, we're getting stuff, stuff from gray boy and then we're getting Weaver scouting the complex and then stuff from gray boy again. And then more, more in the complex looking for Jack. Um, and it's very, it's it's extremely tense and and creepy and unsettling. Yeah. And my favorite part of all of this is this moment that makes me officially declare Theo as my favorite character in the book right now um because there's this moment where revel says best not to watch her voice gentle it's not worth it and what does theo do in response to that he didn't take his eyes off the screen and everybody else looks away even even taylor goes on to scout the area to to do the mission but theo can't he has to watch he has to see it he is that person who speaks for the dead he is that person who has to feel these things and therefore he has to look at them. He can't look away. Like everything that happens in the rest of this chapter is horrible. What what Grey Boy does is horrific. One of the worst things we've seen so far. The 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 choice that Taylor feels that she's absolutely forced to make is is terrible and depressing and awful. But in this moment, I I loved Theo more than ever. I loved him. He doesn't take his eyes off that screen. He can't ignore what's happening. And there's strength in that. There's there's something in there that I just love so much. Yeah, I think I've actually come to appreciate that more since I first read this book because I think when I first read it, I was in a frame of mind where I would have said, no, don't subject yourself to that. You don't need that in your head. Um, now I've come around to a greater appreciation for the idea that you just because you're not looking into the darkness of, of humanity and the bad things that happen in the world doesn't mean that you're actually sparing yourself anything you have to understand what actually exists uh, in order to appreciate the good things in life um yeah. and and that that's not really why theo is doing it theo is doing it to honor those people and those things um but i i still think it's very valid and like you said it's honorable yeah yeah so some of the clones take aster um which basically gray boy uh sort of snags purity um, because she tries to throw Aster out the window. He tortures one of the PRT officers for information about what's going on. The officer tells them all the important information about the expected catalyzing event. Uh, Grey Boy decides that he doesn't like the story, so he tortures the uniform anyway. I, I honestly don't know how something can be so horrible in so many different ways. So at the same time, you're like, Oh shit, Jack just like got information on how exactly he's going to end the world. Fuck. Also, these poor people are being horribly, brutally tortured. Even poor Crusader, which I spent a whole interlude talking about how much I fucking hate and didn't want want to humanize him at all. It's like, oh fuck, he doesn't deserve that. Jesus. Yeah, it. Th- I always thought that was really interesting and I was remembering that during his interlude because there's kind of two ways of doing this. There's the bone saw thing where you say, Oh, you'll never make me empathize with this character. And then Wildo makes us empathize with the character. And then there's the side of, you know what? No punishment is too harsh for this asshole. 
Oh, yeah? Well, how about if we torture him <laughs> for billions of years? Oh, my God. Yeah. And then then yeah. you kind of are like, okay, you know, uh, okay, we'll see. Yeah. Um. Yeah. By this point, I think we do understand what Grey Boy's power is, which is that I think everyone knows, but he, he loops people in time and then he injures them in a way where they're going to feel the injury over and over and over forever, essentially. So Jack, uh, having heard this information from the PRT officer about the, the catalyzing event and, and what that means for him, he's musing about what he sh- what he should do, how how that should affect his strategy. Meanwhile, Weaver tracks him down in a chamber along with about two hundred of the nine. And here we go. Yeah, go, Matt. And she thinks two years of emotions caught up with me in a single instant. I felt fear grip me, anxiety seizing my entire body, adrenaline flooding through my body. Yeah, and I think this 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 line right here is absolutely key to understanding Taylor's mental process at this point. This is everything that she's been preparing for up until now. Every sacrifice she's made, every bad thing she's done, every choice that she's made has been leading to this moment, has been for the sake of this moment, this one chance to stop the man who will end the world. This is everything to her, so she has to act. Inaction for her is not is is not understand like she can't process that at this point this is what she's been doing everything for so inaction is not on the menu she can't do it yeah yeah she's she's always she's usually so so detached in in fights but this one is so important and like you said it's been building up for so long that that it it hits her with this emotional reaction yeah and she, and she says like you said uh she she can't she, she can't not act i have to try i said echoing purity's words from the video such sad, small words, Jack commented. You don't have to. I had tricks prepared, but none of them were remotely viable. Not with Bonesaw so close. Um, and I, I add that line about Bonesaw because it's <laughs> wonderful, dramatic irony that who knows what Bonesaw would do, you know? Yeah, I mean, if if Bonesaw... If, 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 Jack, if she had just killed Jack in this moment, um, I, I don't think Bonesaw would have brought him back, but of course she doesn't know that. So yeah. she can't enter that into her toolbox. That's not part of her equation. Right. And it's like, you're almost like screaming at the screen at that point. It's like, no, just kill him. Uh, trust me. She won't, she won't bring him back. She yeah. won't do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's great. And, and I love like, she echoes Purity's words here and Purity like is talking about like how she just, she just basically tried to throw her daughter out the window. Um, yeah. She had to try. She had to try to give her mercy. And and Taylor's echoing her here, and we don't fully understand how close she's echoing her until the end. It just sounds like, no, I have to try. I have to do something. But it also, very literally, she has to try to do the exact same thing that Purity just did. Yeah, no, you're right. That's that's a connection that it took me a while to make. But she she's she finishes what Purity tried to do, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Jack says he thinks he can take her, and he offers her a fight. Uh, somebody steps through the door near her, and she immediately shoots them in the head. And she thinks, a life taken, a hostage killed, but I couldn't afford to take any chances. Um, which is still, like, a, a important thought for us to register, even though she realizes that it was actually a nice guy. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about this is because of the aster killing that happens in a few paragraphs this almost kind of gets passed over um and i think that that is a level of of difference in in action than this is but but yeah she does kill someone here and thinks that 
they were a hostage in in the moment she thinks that they were a hostage and she decides that that's worth the risk that 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 it's worth taking that chance um if this had been a real hostage taylor would have shot him and killed him yeah. and and so so she's in this mindset now where she she's completely willing to take out innocence to ensure that victory is achieved that jack is stopped that the world ending is prevented um, yeah because she can't afford to take those chances so again where we're kind of like it doesn't i don't think it registers at the time but we are kind of subtly laying the groundwork for the killing of aster that's to come it's all here it's just it's just kind of hidden right it demonstrates to us implicitly that she's willing to pay that cost especially if you contrast it to back when she first fought mannequin there's no way she would have done something like that or if she had yeah. accidentally shot an innocent she would have felt absolutely horrible about it and it would have completely derailed her um now she immediately is is like yeah that sucks um but uh i had to moving on yeah Yeah. Yeah. especially since we just saw her remember the sound that the innocent that died at the hands of mannequin when she failed to protect them quote unquote failed to protect them it's not really her fault but she blames herself for that that's still in her mind she's still thinking about those kind of things so yeah i mean you're absolutely right there yeah i guess i even want to slightly amend um what I just said, which is that it's, it's not that it doesn't affect her. It's that she's compartmentalized away the part of her that it affects so that she can function. Yeah. And, uh, and that's equally bad, I think in, in its own way. Yeah. Uh, we get this thing where as the others arrive, the other heroes arrive outside or nearby, at least Weaver steps into view and opens fire. She then lets us know the reason that she's a crack shot, which is that her power, the sensory aspect of her power gives her a sense of the relative positions of objects so she can usually hit what she's aiming at. I thought I think we talked about this back when she first did that. The first time, the first time she fired a gun, she hit mannequin perfectly. Yeah. And we and we were kind of like, huh, that's like kind of tropish that the person who picks up the gun first just happens to to be awesome with it. But yeah. now we we explain it away here in it and it's it's not just a beat to explain away something. It, it makes sense within the world. It, yeah. It's something that a part of Taylor's power that she wasn't fully aware of at the time, but she has grown to understand it now. I like it. Yeah. What's funny and was that I distinctly remember in that episode, I I did not remember that this explanation happens later in the story. And I was like, <laughs> maybe it has something to do with the fact that she senses where things are with her power. And you were like, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> See, I just thought you were being coy. <laughs> I, I wasn't I wasn't being coy. I was uh, I, I forgot that this is the explanation. In fact, so yeah uh and then of course here's the here's the text here's the text scott i'm gonna read it my bullet took cherish in the head another bullet struck screamer i hesitated then i shot aster who was held in hatchet face's arms manton no too dangerous gray boy was moving trying to get to a better vantage point i turned activating my flight pack for a boost of speed The, the siberian broke away from jack giving chase crawlers advanced only a pace behind in that same moment i drew up more lines giving the signal Revel and Foil both opened fire, their energy orbs and bolts tearing through the walls into the rank and file of the Slaughterhouse-Nine. So so there it is. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about this for a minute. Yeah. And here's, here's what I don't want to do. I, I do not want to moralize. I don't want to have a moral debate about this decision. I don't... I've already done that on Twitter a bunch. <laughs> I, I'm not interested in doing that. Like, y- you can think that this was morally right, and you can think this is morally wrong. And there is evidence in the text here that supports the way you feel either way. Um, 
But what I do want to talk about is I want to talk about how Wildbo structures this event, how he doles it out to us and what that choice means, what it means for Taylor in the moment, what it means for her mindset in that moment, and what it means for who and what she is going to become going forward. Because, you know, regardless of if you think this is justified or not, if this is rational, if this is a rational, justified, morally correct decision or not, is immaterial. The, the point is that Taylor has just killed a toddler, a child, a innocent child. And that is going to have a profound effect on her as a human being. How could it not? How could it not? Even even if she tries to compartmentalize it away, is this the point finally where those compartments cannot hold back anymore? They they are not sufficient enough because this is a huge, huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. You have to wonder, is it just another step down that slippery slope where the where it leads essentially into a bottomless pit or is this a moment where she really has to take stock and consider what she's been willing to sacrifice to get to this point yeah um yeah and and this comes this comes after a two-year time jump this comes after taylor has spent so much time growing and changing and and you know learning to deal with things learning who she is learning to to reach out to jessica when she has these issues and in this moment, like we see her kind of become the person we've seen the entire time that she, that, that her ability to look past these things, her ability to, to be the one to make the choices, even, even if, even if you accept the rationalization and the justification that the, the, the story gives, which again, I think is okay to do. You have to see that she is in a place where she's able to make that decision and she is able to make that decision very quickly. And I know it says that she hesitated. She did hesitate, but it it is microseconds. It is turning a corner, shooting, shooting, pause, fire. Yeah. Um, this is the thing that is so interesting about how this is written is a lot of times with Taylor, we've seen her have to work through that internal justification to monologue internally that justification that she needs to make in order to act. She has to do it. And we don't see that here. She hesitates. And, and remember, we're in her head. We're, 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 we are her. And we don't see her think about these things. We don't see her think about, we don't see her work through it in her head. We don't see her say, well, this is actually like, preferable to what happened uh purity was going to do the same thing this will save her billions of years of torture um we don't see her process that yeah so did she i mean like did she really did she really process through all that um in in it in a way or did she just act and then deal with the processing of that later yeah i feel like i feel like the latter and when we were talking about this earlier i compared it to the sort of flinch reaction you have when you realize that you need to exit the freeway right now, but you're one lane over and you have to decide if you're going to swerve across a lane of traffic and put everyone in danger, or if you're just going to miss the exit. And usually that decision is made by some mental process, which is not quite conscious. And and that's, that's the kind of hesitation that I assessed this as being, um, we talked a lot about this today, actually, and and, I, and we talked a lot about the language of it, and I wanted to, to talk a bit about that now. So 
one thing that I didn't notice before that I'm noticing right now actually is that it says, my bullet took Cherish in the head, another bullet struck Screamer. So the agents in those sentences are the bullets, the bullets, right? The mm-hmm. bullets, the bullet killed Cherish, a bullet killed Screamer. I hesitated, then I shot Aster. Now, Taylor is the agent in that sentence. Yeah. But it's, then I shot Aster, who was held in Hatchet Face's arms. And we both agreed that that sentence was really interesting because your eyes almost just fly over, and then I shot Aster onto the second clause of the sentence. And you have to so, and you have to say, wait, what? And then, yeah. it, like, I don't, I, I bet everyone who reads this story rereads that sentence because of how it's structured. And I think that's, even it, whether or not it's intentional, I suspect it is intentional, but it's it's a fantastic technique of getting you to do a double take just by how you structured a sentence. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And and we, we talked about how rushing to the second clause of that sentence, like almost forces you to move on. Mm-hmm. Like th- there's, there's a, like what does who was held in Hatchet Face's arms, what does that information really do for us in that moment how does that clarify anything for us does that matter does is who was holding aster in that second matter or is it just we're moving on to the next thing right away how different would this be if it just ended then i shot aster how mm-hmm. different would that sentence have read how how much would it have landed and i had several people i think yourself included say that the first time they read this they they almost missed that aster was shot yeah that that they like had to go that like you said they had to go back and reread and some of them said they they didn't even confirm it until she says to golem later in the in the section that aster's dead Mm -hmm. um and and because it just it just happens so fast we have we have a series of one line paragraphs here it just goes so fast and it moves on to the next thing immediately it's like then i shot aster who was held in hatchet face arms then then we move on to manton immediately then no too dangerous we move on flight pack now we're on to siberia now we're on to the next thing there's no stop there there, there there's no slowdown of the, the pros at all it's just next thing next thing next thing move on move on and I, I i it can't not be designed that way like like yeah you, you you make those choices intentionally you you write the thing intentionally that way yeah no i, I agree completely um I've said everything I want to say about this part for now. It's I have, uh, I have as well. Very well, yeah. very well structured, and you're right that I, I mean I find the way it's written and and what it says about the character more interesting than the actual moral debate. So yeah, let's move yeah. on. Yeah. So Jack divides the group of of nine, two hundred nine members rather, uh, in, into different parties and sends them to different locations, even as the heroes blast through them and kill droves of them. Uh, Weaver runs out of that area. I collapsed on my hands and knees as I reached the bottom of the staircase. The others that had managed to reach our location stood over me. They're gone, I said, panting, not from exertion, but the sheer panic of what I'd done. And she tells Theo that Aster is dead, and he starts to ask if she did it, but he stops himself. It's for the best, he said, but he doesn't sound like he believes it. Uh, What a great moment, right? We see her physically physically reacting to what she did almost as if she can't really even believe it and it makes you start to wonder you know how much of this as you said was her conscious thought process and how much would this was her passenger taking over for her in this moment um how much losing control once again and acting out of her acting on instinct acting out of her conscious thought and Mm -hmm. it's devastating and 
the best part about this, the best part about this whole thing is instead of staying with her, instead of getting to see the outcome of this decision from her perspective, we end this chapter and we tear away from her. We rip ourselves out of her perspective and we move into someone else's. Yeah, I think that's fantastic because we 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 desperately want to know, oh, how is Taylor going to deal with this? Oh, nope. Now we're in Theo's head. Yep. Theo wanders around the space that the Nine have just vacated in his interlude 26A, trying not to look too hard at the bodies, trying not to break down in front of everyone. It's good to be in Theo's head. He's he's really not like Taylor. Uh, he's not able to shrug off or compartmentalize away the horror and the loss that he sees. He feels all of it, and he has to exert willpower not to cry. He thinks about how the different heroes present would react if he did cry. Yeah, this is such a great opening. I love Theo so much. And and this is, I think, where I want to dive into that decision to, to cut away from Taylor a little bit more. Um, like I said, she, she has just done this terrible thing. She has killed an innocent. She's killed a child. And even if it's justified or not, she still did it. That doesn't change the fact that it happened. And and we see that she's panically, panicking, physically hyperventilating. And then we cut away from it to Theo. Theo, this person who who is the one that suffers most from the choice that Taylor makes. Not just because Aster was his family, but because he's also the person that can't compartmentalize, that has to deal with death, that has to deal with the consequences of people's actions. So cutting to him, not only is cutting away from Taylor in this moment perfect, but cutting to Theo is perfect. And and on top of all that, it allows us to observe Taylor's reaction from afar, from that third party type perspective we're out of her mind and we're away from her tendency to justify and compartmentalize and kind of switch into that almost unreliable narrator thing where where we're like so in tuned with her thought process that we tend to get ourselves into a place where we agree with it and believe it and so now we get to observe her reaction from someone else from someone who can't do the things that taylor does Mm mm-hmm yeah, it, and, and her, what her reaction is, is that she's just kind of sitting there, just looking over the bodies, and Theo is, is observing her, and he's trying to guess what she's thinking. He's he's thinking she would be assessing who was dead, who wasn't planning and adjusting her expectations for the coming fight, quite possibly. Probably. In the midst of that, was Weaver thinking about Aster? The fact that she, either by aiming a gun and pulling the trigger, or by giving the order to revel and foil, had killed the toddler? Weaver was a hard person to deal with. Taylor, not so much. So it's been a long time since we, we being the story, has treated Taylor and Weaver, Skitter, uh, as distinct individuals. Um, Taylor really hasn't been doing it since she was first exposed, since her identity came out. She just kind of transitioned to a place where she is Weaver. Weaver is her. Taylor, Weaver, same thing. But we're in Golem's eyes now, and and so we kind of see it. We see that he still views these people separately, and he views there's part of Taylor that that is easier to get along to, but the Weaver part is that part that we've been talking about, how much of a pain in the ass it must be to to work or be around this person. Um, he views these people, these identities, as separate, and he does the same thing to himself as well. Um, we'll see that in, in a minute, but uh, I'm, I'm curious how... St- how spot on do you think Golem kind of is in this moment? Because I, I do agree with, with him that she's absolutely like scanning and assessing who is dead and who isn't and counting the numbers and, and figuring out who is left. 
Um, I also think that that on level she is thinking about Aster in, in a certain way, um, yeah. processing it, justifying, uh, working through her reasons. Yeah, I think she spends at least part of the time that she's just sitting here listlessly thinking about Aster because, as we're about to see, um, Rachel reacts to the way she's sitting. And I think if she were just sitting there thinking about strategy, Rachel wouldn't have reacted to that. Yeah. Um, and and it's possible that all she's doing is she's trying desperately to, to cram Aster into, into a compartment, but at least it takes her a little while to accomplish that. Um, and, and, and then after she's accomplished that, she does return to being all business. Yeah, you're right. So Theo lets himself think about Caden and even the worst ones, Crusader and, and even Night and Fog, who we kind of don't even see as people. But to him, they were a kind of family. Yeah, and here's here's the part of the preparation where I just literally copy-pasted like <laughs> an entire page worth of things that Theo has said because Theo basically is, is working through and processing through all of this stuff right now, and it's all brilliant and wonderful. And I, I get it. I, I told myself when I copy pasted this all and I was not going to read it all verbatim, but there are definitely parts of it I want to hit on. There's one part in specific, like specifically that I want to hit on because I think it's really important to kind of a lot of the themes of these two Theo chapters. Okay, go for um, it. So, so the one I wanted to hit on specifically is that w- exactly that when he's thinking about um, his family with, with these Nazis, these, these people that he finds disgusting individuals, but, but he says, there had been gentle moments, like the time they'd been watching television one morning, and a cape had talked about how tinkers were their least favorite type of opponent to fight, and he and Caden had laughed, because Caden and her group had run into Leet just a week before. Stupid things in the end. Nonsensical. But stupid nonsensical things were sometimes the most important. And it's this, like, th- th- this maturity from Theo we see here that, that like, yes, these were terrible people, and but he there he had some kind of bond some kind of connection to them and then and and sometimes these small insignificant things that you would never think about are the parts that really end up mattering to you and i think that's that's so kind of beyond his years i think that's great yeah i wonder if that's something that taylor understands yeah not, I, not, I don't know yeah not sure that know. she does i don't i i think i think taylor's so big picture you know, and, and like goal oriented that it has to be the end thing that I, I don't, th- I don't think it is. I don't think she could understand that. I don't think that she would fully get what he means here. Yeah. I think that she used to value the small moments with the undersiders. And, and in fact, that's why she still feels this great attachment to the undersiders while yeah. she feels no yeah. attachment to the Chicago wards because they shared all those small, stupid, nonsensical things with each other. But, <laughs> but now she doesn't allow herself that luxury anymore no um, so and in her head she would say that she can't afford to yeah uh, perhaps theo perhaps i would say you can't afford not to that's that's your humanity yeah and so so one of the other parts is when he's talking about the the people he's lost and he says he, he's he's lost them to violence and stupidity and madness and he could see the allure of in how the others seem to be functioning bottling all and inside he could see the twistic logic of it even as there was if as if there was a binary to everything every enemy was somehow a twisted mess of emotion layered by a seeming calmness while every ally seemed to be cold inside with only an act on the surface he looked down at his mask 
a metal face with lenses over the eyes, stoic, expression neutral, or a little stern. He'd chosen it at first because his real face was a little too round for a mask, but the PR teams had wanted to get more faces on the team. He'd compromised and hadn't given his mask much thought beyond that. So we have this moment where he's he's trying to understand people, and he's he's trying to understand, and, and he sees why a tailor-like reaction to the things that happen is preferable how this this constant masking of emotions is a preferable thing to get you through the day and then he relates that to himself and and i get we have to go back once again to this idea of the importance of names and the importance of costumes in this story and how it's more than just uh, a thing you have to wear it's your identity it's it's how you display yourself and and Theo looks down at this mask that that like projects all the things that he while understands the the meaning of has trouble doing and he kind of regrets it a little bit like he he says I don't know if this is the image I really want to put forward um this cold unflinching person I don't know if th- th- I don't know if this is who I want to be right while Taylor is sitting there trying to to fit her her metaphorical mask back in place so that she can function Theo is doing the opposite thing. He's saying, I don't, I, I reject this idea that this is how I should be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to almost, to almost kind of confirm that in this really wonderful way to cap off my long list of things, I copy and paste it. Um, like he, he's thinking about what happens next. Like he's thinking he could make it through this, save the world. They could find the source of the end bringers and defeat them, could clean things up, get things in order and stop all the real monsters. He could go to college, get a career, and find a girl and marry her. And at the end of the day, Justin would still be screaming. Aster would still be dead. The ugly decisions would have been made. And it's this 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 beat that we've seen throughout the story so far. This idea that even if you do good things, even if you save the world, even if you do right things, it doesn't erase the bad things that you've done. We, we Taylor specifically said this with when she was contemplating Regent that he he at the end of his days he did the right thing and that doesn't stop the bad things from being there they still exist so this idea that if you make the, if you if you sacrifice things for the right reasons if you make choices that end in badness but overall goodness th- that's true but the badness is still there and and you still have to live with it so. Taylor killed Aster, and maybe that was the morally right decision at the time. Maybe she saved her billions of years of torture and torment and horribleness. But at the end of the day, she still killed Aster. And that's something that Theo knows. Like, Taylor Taylor is all about the mission, and Theo is kind of all about the after. And I, I love I love that dichotomy. I love it so much. Yeah, it's what we really need right here. We really need that exactly yeah. right at this point in the story, I think. Yeah, I was joking earlier about like making one of those trolley problem memes, except the trolley problem meme is just the first panel, and then every subsequent panel of like the cartoon is the guy who pulls the lever trying to go about living his life and being <laughs> destroyed by the remorse of, of what he's done. Yeah. E- even though he made the quote-unquote correct utilitarian decision, he keeps thinking about the the person who he's he's responsible for killing, you know, um, yeah. that's 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 reality. That's what that's how people really deal with these things. Absolutely, you know? yeah. yeah. And and you do live, 
most of your life in the after. It's not just the decision that you made in that moment. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So like we mentioned, Rachel can tell something is off with, with Theo and Weaver and he asks Theo, what's up? She asks Theo, what's up? And he explains, um, you know, that he's kind of messed up by all this. He's kind of holding it, trying to hold it together. Uh, and she doesn't really seem to buy it. She doesn't really get it, but she gives him and Weaver each a therapy dog. Um, uh. and it's, it's just, it's so great because she seems so like gruff and, and angry as always, but like now we understand her and, and we know that like she, she leaves the dog with him and, yeah, he doesn't really understand. He doesn't understand why she's done it, and he starts, you know, starts petting and scratching the dog. And it, it helped oddly enough having contact with another living creature without all the issues and hassles of dealing with people. No judgment, no worries, just this being alone without being alone. And <laughs> like in his mind, this is an accident, but obviously Rachel completely did this on purpose. Yeah, and it's so funny because like we've seen Rachel through Taylor's point of view so often that we forget, like, like. Taylor very it does not point out the gruffness and the coldness as much because Taylor understands her so much that she kind of just processes through it and doesn't even consciously think about it. But we haven't seen her from other people's point of view and, and how how gruff and, and just naturally annoying that she can seem to people like like Theo just wants her to leave like she's like she's bugging him. He's just like, go away. I don't want to talk about Weaver. I don't want to talk about this. Go away because he doesn't understand her. He doesn't get her. But yeah. Like this moment is so wonderful. The dog helps him. I, I love Rachel. Yeah, I think it's one of the more redeeming qualities of Taylor as a character that that she has gone out of her way to make this connection and and retain this connection with Rachel. Because we talk yeah. a lot about how she's sort of drawn as an unlikable protagonist in a lot of ways, and a lot of other characters don't like her, but this aspect of of her humanity and her caring nature uh shines through and and really buys back a lot of credit with us i think yeah and i think it it, like we we talked about this before but how different the story would have been if we weren't in her point of view and i wonder how how much less we would have liked taylor as a character if we didn't get to see things you know from her perspective didn't get to understand that sometimes when she's annoying when she's direct She's doing it from from this this deep seated core of wanting to do the right thing, wanting to be that hero, genuinely caring about people. Um, that's it's another example of why that first person point of view works so well in this story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now it's go time. So Theo puts on his mask and he becomes Golem. Uh, and it's such a good moment. Like he says, Golem again, the Golem now. And it, it, it ties back to his examination of that mask earlier, that, that golem, that this persona is a symbol of that stoic, expressionless, neutral cape that Theo has such a hard time being. And he doesn't he doesn't want to become this person. He doesn't think he's really capable of it. But but he's also a hero. He's been gifted with this power and this ability to make real change. So he's he's going to do it. He's going to don that mask and become golem. But he doesn't identify as golem he's theo and he's donning this persona to do things like i i think that if jessica yamada were to sit him down and ask him what his name was i don't think he would say golem i think he would say his name is theo Mm -hmm. i agree yeah so they argue about where to go uh turns out that jack with the remaining siberian gray boy hook wolf and all eight harbingers along with some psychosomas and nixes 
went to an area of Los Angeles that Tohu and Bohu turned into a mess of traps. The other members of the Nine, uh, sorry, the other uh, heroes want to follow the other groups of the Nine to um, their own cities where they've all gone separately. But Weaver persuades them that they, they need to bring the full brunt of their forces against Jack. Once we leave, Defiant said, we break the configuration cell and everything here breaks down on a Euclidean level. There's no going back, changing our mind. I get that, Weaver said, but two or three of us aren't going to do anything special. We need big guns. Golem closed his eyes. There she is, Weaver. Yeah, yeah, there it is, Matt. Um, And again, we're out of Taylor's point of view. We don't see her processing through the things that she just did. We get a little hints of it from Theo and from Rachel, but we don't get to see it internally. Um, But Theo does see something. Theo sees that, 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 almost sees when Taylor dons that mask, compartmentalizes and, and becomes Weaver again. Um, she, she has, she has processed the thing that she did. She shoved it away and now she's donned Weaver again and, mm-hmm. and moved on. It's now back to the mission, back to the mission. Yep. And, and they get right to it. They, they teleport into Los Angeles and we, we experience all of this from Golem's point of view now. And we come to understand that Golem's power has a sensory aspect. I don't think we were aware of. He, he's aware mm-hmm. of all of the, n- the nearby surfaces that share the same material as the surface he's touching. So he can just kind of run his fingers along his his his, his uh, fan or his skirt or whatever he has now, and he kind of gets a sense of what's around him. Which, I mean, of course, makes complete and total sense, but never occurred to me before. Like, of course, it, like how could he how could he know what metals were nearby if he couldn't sense them? But but yeah, that <laughs> never occurred to me. Yeah, and I, I like that. I mean, it, it's sort of, you wonder if he would have thought of a lot of these things if he hadn't been working with Taylor all this time, but he's very, you know, that that's that's perhaps a non-intuitive use of a power, but he basically is able to get a full sensory map of the whole area um, yep. with a power that is fundamentally about making giant hands. <laughs> yep. So Dinah comes in on the comm and talks specifically to Golem and tells them to stop. Everyone, but he, she, she says everyone but Golem dies in two minutes if they don't stop. And she introduces a code, blue and red. Blue means back, right, retreat, solo. Red means forward, left, attack, team. All he needs to do is ask blue or red in the context of what's going on will imply the meaning of what he needs to do. Yeah, and, and she also, uh, in this moment, says 31. And that means 31 more uses of her power. Uh, she's 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 gotten such a good understanding of her power she knows exactly how many questions she has left before her power stops working because it hurts her too much and this becomes the structural element that guides us through all the action sequences of this next chapter and a half um this countdown of dinah's questions and i think it works really well as as a way of of controlling things through action beat to action beat and and we never get stale because we constantly see this countdown we're constantly counting down and there's this moment like where you kind of realize even when theo is on his last leg you get this feeling that he's not quite done yet because he's still got a handful of more questions. There's still seven questions left. He's not out yet. It's a really cool way to structure the action sequence and make it fresh and interesting and tense. I like it a lot. Yeah, and I I, I think of this as being cinematic. I'm not sure why exactly, but I, I find it very easy to imagine 
you know, Golem running around and saying, red or blue? And then, you know, Dinah either answering or, or saying like, I, I don't know if I can burn a question on this one. And him saying, you know, no, really, now, now. Yeah, you know, it's just, yeah. it's so, there's such an urgency to it. There's such an urgency to every aspect of it. And, and like you said, it's a great way of framing the choices also of saying, sometimes in a complicated action scene, you're not sure what the character is considering. And here it's always okay, red or blue. Am I gonna am I gonna be aggressive? Am I gonna uh, fall back a little bit? Um, and and it's framed like that repeatedly, and you get a sense of the ebb and flow of how things are going, how Theo is doing versus his opponents, how he feels about it. Um, it's it's great. I love it. Yeah. yeah so in, absolutely. So now, just as they back up, Harbingers spill out from where they were about to be wearing basically Halloween costumes with makeshift weapons, including what we can assume is, is an axe that is on fire. Yes! Axe 2, Return of the Fire. Um, That's funny. <laughs> it's like, it's so funny because like, we've been doing this from the beginning and it like feels like sometimes things are made in response to things that we talked about, but of course they're not. No. no. <laughs> because... That's right. impossible, but it's it always makes me laugh. Yeah. Uh, if if we had like episode titles on our episodes, I'd call this Arc Twenty Six Part Two. Everything Scott loves comes back because we got fire axes, we got containment foam. Okay, there's child murder. That's that's a bad example. <laughs> uh, well, let's just move on. Let's just move on. So the Harbingers close in and they easily evade all the attacks as they close the distance. Golem makes a platform hand and lifts everyone up into the air, but the Harbingers follow. They start systematically taking the heroes apart, ruining Tecton's armor and stabbing Chevalier in his good eye. We were reminded that the good guys don't really know Harbinger's power. They don't know that he's the number man, and even if they did, they wouldn't know what his power was anyway. It's just not, it's not even fair. It's yeah. power. It's not fair. Yeah, this is dramatic irony again because we've seen how ridiculous the number man is from yeah. the inside, and we're just like, nope, 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 no way out of this. There's eight of them. Yeah. Um, so Golem realizes, as we do, that the Harbingers could end this even faster if they wanted to, but they're playing with the heroes. He launches as many people to safety as he can, but it only slows the Harbingers a bit. Yeah, and it's just, even in this moment, just like Jack and all his people are still just toying with them, just playing with them. It's like, it's like fuck. Yeah, and that's emphasized by the fact that the Harbingers are like, oh yeah, don't kill Theo, we want to bring him to, to Jack. Yeah. So Cyan is coming in, uh, they get the message, and they agree that Weaver needs to go intercept him. Uh, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that, that Taylor's the one because she can fly and stuff, but I was a little like, oh, Taylor's going to talk to Cyan? I don't know about this. I don't know if Taylor's <laughs> in, in the best mental state right now to be chatting with the most powerful person on the planet. Yeah, you're right. That does seem like a violation of quarantine. Yeah. 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 Um, so the numbers tell Golem that he needs to leave, um, that the numbers for his friends are actually better if he leaves. So he goes off on his own, and he starts using Dinah's power to narrow down where Jack is. Surprisingly, calling in the big guns at this point helps the numbers a lot. So, so they do that. Um, and he says, uh, Jack is southwest of my location, he reported, heading off solo on precog advisement. Um, Scott, next time I want to leave a party early, I'm going to say heading off solo on precog advisement. Just parties? I'm going to use that constantly. I said it to my wife when I came in here to record the podcast. <laughs> I mean, she didn't get it, but I definitely said it. Yeah. Well, she will. Hopefully. Yeah. So he vaults across the rooftops using his power to sense and destroy traps. 
but he's eventually forced down to the ground where Psychosoma's monsters lurk. They run into a deadfall, and then he moves on. Yeah, I know we talked about this already, but like his ability to sense materials and how freaking useful that is, like in, in a in a very similar way to how Taylor can kind of sense with her bugs. It's just it's just so cool. It's so inventive. Like it makes perfect sense, but it's it's great. Yeah, right. It it reminds you know we talked a lot about how the fact that Taylor can sense everything really helps us understand things as the readers, and this does the same thing actually. Right, and and we talked I think weeks and weeks ago about like how is worm two going to achieve that same thing with a different power set in a way that's not just like oh well this is another power solely because it has that ability and i think this is a perfect example of it right here ability uh, you wouldn't even think about this power having that ability but Mm -hmm. but here it is yeah yeah i like how we get the sense that dinah has really come a long way in mastering her power um without having let that be told to us explicitly She's able to sometimes get a sense of the paths and outcomes without necessarily burning a question on them. And she's also able to not ask a question, which is something she couldn't do before. Like if, if a question occurred to her, that was the same thing as asking the question. And, and now she can yeah. not, not ask it. Yeah. Yeah. I like how like they're having a conversation back and forth and like, and it's like, she mentions how like there are more, there seem to be more paths that are positive and good and, and, golem is like that's that's good right and her response is yeah in a numbery way yeah <laughs> i just like that little beat yeah me too so ultimately he finds jack and then i think to connect back to the beginning of the chapter as he faces him down tears were forming in his eyes ridiculous wasn't supposed to be what happened in this kind of situation and that's because he's theo like that's just who he is and he he can try to he can put on that mask but he can't he can't truly ever become that persona that cold calculating at least it's not yet yeah and there's so much fear and and anger bound up with this that it would be far too much to ask of oneself that that you not be emotional when you come up against this person who's responsible for so much so much pain you know yeah yeah so jack continues his villain dialoguing flexing his power at golem but golem is stone-faced This isn't a movie. Stop talking, Jack. You're not that clever, not as sharp as you like to think. You talk to me about keystones? Bullshit. You're a sad, pathetic killer with delusions of grandeur. Jack's smile dropped from his face. He held the claymore with one hand, the blade's point touching the ground, and spread his arms. His unbuttoned shirt parted, showing the whole of his bare shirt and stomach, showing himself to be vulnerable, exposed. Oh, what a great beat. Like, that's something you and I have kind of been talking about since we met him, that there's this um there's this kind of hint that that jack thinks he's smarter and thinks he's more clever than he is and and not as and he's not actually not as sharp as he thinks and i think that's a really excellent little play on words there from theo the guy with knives is not as sharp as he thinks very clever very clever um and i think like in a few chapters we're going to see like the actual explanation of this and I, i just think it's it's it feels like we've been building to this uh, since we met Jack and it's I, I love like it, how much this contrasts with how Theo stood up to him back back when he a few years ago like he's still like he's still like there's this core of Theo that's still there the guy that stood up to Jack originally and stands up to him now but 
he's just done with his shit. It's like, stop talking. And he repeats that a couple times throughout the fight as Jack like monologues as they're fighting. Stop talking, Jack. Like, he's just, I'm done with it. Let's do this. Yeah, it's very satisfying. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the uh, people like you I'd kill, sir. Um, yeah. So he begins fighting Jack, going by Dinah's cues, and he seems to be doing okay. Uh, at least nobody has the obvious upper hand for a while. But then Jack sees in the sky that Grey Boy has looped Scion. Yeah. I wonder, did you, like, I really never for a moment, like, totally believed that this would be like scion's done now because he's in a time bubble it's over no more scion um but i did like this is still a no shit moment even if you don't believe that because you realize that scion is now if if he's not stuck forever he's stuck for the moment and he's going to be here and that's when i the, the the wheel started turning that that the catalyst we've been talking about is going to be our our golden boy guy yeah, I don't I don't remember. I think there's so many like parallel threads of what could be happening going on that I don't think I ever settled into any particular one before we got to the moment of revealing mm-hmm. what it was. Um yeah, I don't think I had a firm guess as to as to what that would mean. Yeah, but the way, the way he says it like he, with with Sion being trapped, he basically is done is done with Theo. He doesn't care about him. He thinks he's boring. Yeah. And he says that Jack pointed at Scion trapped in the sky. That interests me. And it's like, it's almost like makes your skin crawl a little bit. Cause you're like, Oh shit. Like this, like, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. It's a really good moment as you realize things could be, are about to get way, way worse than just Theo losing this fight. Yeah. And just think about how many different characters and how much like history of these characters we have in play over the last million words of, of build up toward this. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, Jack is done with fighting Theo. So he releases the Nyx gas from all the surrounding fake buildings. And then Jack riding Hook Wolf and, uh, and more of the nine with him emerge from the gas. Theo raised his hand as a shield even before Jack used his power in conjunction with Hook Wolf's. A hand of pavement struck by a thousand slashes in a matter of a second whittled to nothing. Then he had only armor and that too started to come apart. The cuts that followed parted flesh. Ah, oh, man, I was so mad when I finished this chapter because I really thought Theo was just going to die here. I really did. Yeah. Um, and it's because we kind of break trend here. Outside of Arc 17, where we were in one long interlude chapter from one point of view, we never really finish an interlude from a point of view and then stay in that interlude in the next. So I really thought in this moment we were ending this chapter, we were going to shift to someone else and we were going to witness Theo dying from that other point of view. And I was like, no, no. And I think that's, and, and I think, again, I think that's something that Wild Bill was kind of conscious of. He, he leaves us on this cliffhanger here, knows that, that that's kind of going to be the natural reaction to this and, and uses it. Yeah. I, I, agree and i also felt like theo was a goner here um and in fact i think he would have been if jack hadn't intentionally sort of pulled back just as his power was about to finish him off because yeah it's like a it's he just shreds away a a giant hand of pavement and all of theo's armor and stops just you know after you know mutilating his body but not quite killing him yep but we don't get to really find out about that quite yet because we move on into 26.b and Theo has gone back to his his training, and he's uh, it starts out he's he's in his his foster home I suppose with Mister Gale his foster caretaker, 
um, offering him a ride to to his co-op, his work, which he refuses. He heads out thinking about the Endbringer attacks, which now come far more frequently every two months, and the growing sense among people that things are falling apart. Yeah, and it, it says, beyond even the Endbringers, there seemed to be an unspoken acknowledgement that things were well beyond their control, that this thing with capes and parahumans wasn't going to turn out all right. And I think this is really fascinating because it's this window into what it must feel like to live in a society on the verge of extinction. And I really like how much Wildbow captures this feeling. And, and it echoes this two types of people that Taylor mentioned a few arcs ago when she was um, trying to recruit people into the wards, uh, that there's those that see the end of things as almost freeing that they're like freed from the burden of everyday life and the worries of everyday life. And then there are those that exist and work hard only to stop it. But either way, this, this mask of normal life and normal concerns is, is kind of just ending. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, again, that's a really interesting take on this whole idea of superheroes because you never think about, that at all in any of these superhero stories that we that we know and love it's it's not like okay well what does what does your corner you know worker at the at the deli think about this whole superhero phenomenon um do they think yeah. it's cool or do they think it's utterly terrifying and uh in this case yeah. more on the more more toward the latter yeah the, the prt existed almost to try to sell people on this and get people to be pro this and i think we're seeing in this moment that that has just failed that there's too much destruction there's too much death there's too much fear um to actually reliably keep that kind of pr up yeah that's right so he meets taylor at the hq and he tells her that he wants to do some sparring she mentions that he might be better off sparring with the others um, but he wants to spar with her he values her as an opponent for her killer instinct this compliment i guess you are dedicated to the point of cruelty, so only you can be the one to to, to teach me. Yeah. So I, nice. Yeah. He, yeah. She probably takes it as a compliment. I'm sure she does. Tecton comes up to talk to him as he puts on his costume, and it's about Weaver and how she keeps pushing people and how it always damages relationships. And she probably knows that she's doing it, but she doesn't care because the mission is more important. Hey, Matt. That sounds like our girl. Yep, sounds like Tecton has a good read on her. Yep. So Tecton asks him if he like-likes Taylor, and he says he does a little, but he knows it won't work out, it wouldn't work out, she's too hard to get along with. And somewhere in Brockton Bay, Gru nods vigorously. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He admits that he likes Ava, uh, Cuff, and Tecton encourages Theo to pursue things with her. Before he leaves, he arranges Theo to patrol with her. Is it like, I, I, I love this. Um, it, this comes right at the end of this, this beat where we observe Theo noting how the world is falling apart, how everything's on the brink of ending, how normal things don't seem to matter anymore. And then we have Tecton walk up to Theo and, and what are his concerns? Um, his concerns are, you've been hanging out with this person a lot. Why don't you, who do you have a crush on? Yeah. Uh, and it seems so trivial, doesn't it? Like it, it's, I understand why he's doing it. And I get Tecton's reasoning, but like when, when you're in Theo's mindset that this is the end, that this is it. And like, <laughs> like, like you see that he kind of feels, feels the triviality of it. And I think this goes 
in a roundabout way to show exactly why Theo does need Taylor, why he has to train with her and only her. Taylor is the only one who understands what he's going through, the only one who's as committed to this thing as he is. Tecton, as great as he is, and he, he's great, he's great and he's hardworking, he is still looking at the, the things like relationships and friendships and team cohesion. Um, to Theo and to Taylor, Jack and this end of the world is all that there is. There's no time for this other stuff. So that's why he goes with her. Yeah, and when Golem says that, Tecton, when, when he says, you know, well, you know, she she and I are the ones who take this the most seriously. Mm-hmm. Tecton is literally like, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and it's not convincing at all. Um, and Theo perceives that. And that's why he can't really, you know, connect with, with Tecton that way. Right. Isn't that interesting, though? I, I, I want to stop and talk about this for a bit. Because Theo takes this thing so seriously because Theo was individually called out. Because Jack called out Theo and said, if you do not face me, if you do not train as hard as you can and try to kill me, I'm going to kill people. And it will be on you. A thousand people on you. It is you. So it, it makes sense that Theo takes this thing so seriously. It makes sense that this is Theo's sole focus because he's been individually tasked with this responsibility. Taylor hasn't. No one's done this to Taylor. No one's no one's forced Taylor into a situation where she has to be this committed this is all just her. This is all her innate internal drive to be the person that has to fix this thing, that has to be the one. And I think that, like, we give Taylor a hard time, we worry about her, but there is something just truly heroic about that, that that she, with no outside force or or kind of, like, threat, takes this whole thing upon herself, takes that world on her shoulders just on her own and that that is heroic yeah yeah that is her heroic nature it's that's that's i mean that's the that's the core thing of this story is you have someone with an ultimately heroic nature who is put in a world where saving everyone requires terrible sacrifices which is fairly realistic actually yeah yeah so then he goes down to meet weaver and he blurts that he wants full contact sparring you against me a real match she nodded. This has something to do with your talk with Tecton? Yeah, but not like you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, and that goes back to that that thing you just said, that, that that talk only confirmed that Taylor's the only one, the only one that can train him, the only one that can help him get to a point where he needs to be at the end of these two years. Um, the only one that can really, truly push him. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they spar, and Weaver is obviously the superior fighter. Uh, short of her refusal to deal permanent injury or kill him, she barred no holds, showed no mercy, offered little kindness, if any. There wasn't a thought to his morale, to the fact that she was systematically methodically destroying the confidence he was building up. No, not heartless, not wholly inconsiderate. She tore him down because she trusted him to pull himself back together, to rebuild that lost confidence and redouble his efforts. So it's demoralizing, but he appreciates it, and on a level, he needs it. Yeah, and isn't it kind of similar to how Jack operates? I mean, on a much more monstrous scale, but like Jack wants to fight to tear someone down, to destroy them, to rip their confidence, to toy with them until they are broken. And and it's in in this training, Theo is almost preparing for that kind of fighting um, because she's just dominating him like completely. 
That's right. Yeah. And, and he, he's seeking, he's seeking that kind of pressure because he thinks yeah. it was necessary. If she could just impart one useful lesson, it could make all the difference. Some technique, some of her ruthlessness, something, anything would do. Yeah. And then that's such a great beat to end this, this little, this little jot back in time because suddenly we realize why we did it, why we jumped back in time to see the scene because now we're in this moment where the word, Theo is in this desperate situation and the only thing he can do, the only way he can save himself is, is because of this training with Taylor. Yeah. This, this indefatigability, this, this sort of ruthlessness and and toughness. And, and here we, we may see him become golem a little bit. So yeah, the, the, the cutting force of Hookwolf's blades, uh, grinds away his armor Dinah tells him to retreat, and he, he does his best to retreat, but he's already too wounded. Um, his wounds must be pretty horrific because he's he's been completely lacerated by, you just imagine Hookwolf except like telekinetically projected everywhere. Oh so he's in shock and bleeding terribly. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine. That's oh, Jesus. Yeah, right. It's hard to it's hard for me to imagine what these wounds look like and still have them not be like fatal. But uh, there you have it. So Jack taunts him more and orders the nine to finish him off. And then Dinah tells him to attack, which is such a wonderful moment, I think. Cause, yeah. Cause you're like, yeah. oh, he's dead. Then Dinah's like red. And that's, there's that, there's that, 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 uh, that tactic again. Oh, it's so good. And it's he, so good. Yeah. So he crushes the supports of the nearby buildings and this gives him an opening to, to get up and start getting away. Yeah, I can't even believe he can move. Yeah. He's he's like almost blinded. He's stabbed. He's bleeding. And he's like basically the only way he's able to move is he's using his power. He like literally picks himself up by creating a fist to lift him. Yeah. And he's using them to walk almost. It's like, holy shit. He doesn't and he doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um it, it's interesting. It says it, it reminded Golem of sparring against Taylor. He hadn't won those fights either. Um, and I think that's interesting because it, this reminds me of how Taylor fights, where if you were to view this, he's he's doing so many things in rapid succession. He's using so many different techniques and ideas that he must have come up with in the course of fighting Taylor. And it, it's it, again, this is this seems very visual, very visually stunning to, to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's absolutely true in this moment that he hadn't won those fights. He didn't. Um, but he hadn't, he hadn't given up either. Like he, he kept fight, even, even as he lost, even as he lost all these fights, he never gave up. And that's, that's what pushes him through in this moment that, that he worked through all this and kept going and he keeps going here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he runs through. Um, he runs through the alley and he fights off a crowd of the nine. Then he makes a staircase of hands and ascends to the roof. He knocks down nearby buildings, being ruthless and aggressive, not, not, uh, able to, to care who else he might be hurting. Uh, like Rabbi Bezalel's, Bezalel's golem, he's all about the mission. Yeah. And we see now that that's in the training sessions with Taylor. That's what she imparted to him. Um, this ability to channel Taylor herself, mm-hmm. the ability to kind of transition into her kind of mindset and to confirm that this is what's happening. Theo crushes a mannequin with his hands and thinks in tomb, almost hearing Weaver's voice uttering the word. So he's doing a thing and he can almost hear Weaver say it. 
almost can hear Weaver do it. So he's like, he's, he's almost literally at this point, just acting as an extension of her. And like, it's, it's scary on the one hand, but like, it's, it's kind of showing that this is what he needs in this moment. This is how he survives. Yeah. Yeah. They've they've trained so hard that, that he's, he's absorbed, he's absorbed these lessons, which is what he wanted. and, And it worked. That's what, that's what's great is that it, it worked. So Chuckles almost gets him. We haven't seen too much of Chuckles. Chuckles is pretty terrifying. Um, but Golem crushes his nads before he can do anything more. <laughs> um, the Chicago Board's penis joke comes full circle. <laughs> yes, it's it's because of Golem's experience manipulating penis-related hand <laughs> power things that he was able to do this. So, so the murder rat almost gets him. And he thinks that he's a goner, but Weaver comes to the rescue. Parian yep. then arrives and stitches him back together with telekinetic needle and thread. And this fucking guy is a boss. He's like literally been ripped apart. He's somehow managed to fight his way to safety. And in this moment, they're like, Golem, like you're, you're done. You've done enough. Rest. And he's like, no. Yeah, no. he's like he's like passing his body around between hands, and he's like, yeah. "No, I'm fine. Just uh, yeah, props just patch me up, up boss, yeah. and I'm going back out there." Right. God, what a fucking beast! I know, I love him. So they sneak up on Jack uh, again using the sensory aspect of his power, which is which is cool. Hoyden and Revel are conspicuously absent at this point. Are we supposed to conclude something from that? I mean, I honestly didn't notice until you wrote that down. So I. I certainly hope not. Well, g- although I d- I did predict that one of them would die. So. Yeah, you predicted Revel would. I mean, the the, the text actually <laughs> says, the text actually says Hoyden and Revel were conspicuously absent. It uses that oh, word. I didn't. I didn't. I, huh? I, interesting. Well, I only really. Yeah. So I'm I'm pretty sure we're supposed to assume the worst there. I'm not. I, I don't recall exactly, but yeah, because we we missed a lot of horrible fighting involving a bunch of harbingers. So who knows? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So Golem tells them that he's that uh, that Jack is like Weaver, that he has some other power, perhaps a thinker power. And Tattletail says that as far as she can tell, this is true in some sense. Yeah, and they're they're sneaking up on Jack, they're trying to figure out what to do, and they're all like this moment, they're all a fucking wreck. Like we didn't talk about this, but Chevalier got like blinded in his good eye, and so now he can like barely see, and Golem is like stitched together with magical thread. Like things are not going well. Yeah. Um and and as they're waiting they're basically like, well, you know, we're we're in terrible shape and there's Jack <laughs> and he's got all of the resources on his side right there and yep. Golem says if we attack Jack right now, what's the chance of the world ending? 97% chance, but the alternative is worse and it's getting worse every second. He barely had time to register the thought that this was it, the moment. Go, he said. So basically there's a 3% chance of success. But they have to take it anyway. Yep. Three percent. And here we go. This is this is it. This is the final confrontation. We have seven questions left at this point, and and this is for everything. Yep. So let's do it. So Hookwolf fights the heroes going after Foil, uh, with the other heroes running interference, and she finally kills him with her rapier penetrating his core. And Azazel lands nearby and disgorges a bunch more heroes, Cuff, Grace, Clockblocker, Kidwin, Vista. 
they realize that a group of the nine in a nearby alleyway are are not who they appear to be. They're disguised. They're actually uh, Siberian Jack and Grey Boy right there at a dangerously close distance. The heroes desperately try to hide and obscure Grey Boy's vision. He can still use his power, though, without a line of sight, and he just starts freezing chunks of space all around, and he catches foil. Oh, I was so devastated here. Not yeah. only because I didn't want anyone to die, but I picked the wrong lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and like, parry and scream. Like, this is, again, it's it's the rule of three here, right? So we see foil scream, and then we repeat that beat twice more to really nail home, she's been caught in a bubble. And then, only after that third one, then we get parry and scream. And it's just so soul-crushing. Like, I can imagine what it's like to witness a love that happened to a loved one. And God, God, it's so awful. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that was a moment where I was like, well, that's just mean. Yeah. You can't, you can't do that. Yeah. Which, of course, well, we'll get there. Um, so Golem has an idea about what Jack's power could actually be. He asks Dinah if the idea that he's thinking of is right. And she says that it's a good shot. And it's a stupid, silly answer. He finds a certain individual in the crowd of heroes nearby, and he calls them to him. Uh, he stops the rest from coming. Only one person present will serve. He sends this individual the long way around behind Jack. And the individual, the dragon's tooth uniform, sprays Jack and Siberian with containment foam. <gasps> We're probably going to get flagged for that, and I'm going to have to lower the volume a lot, (laughs) but worth it. Yes, definitely worth it. And you're right, Scott. This chapter has completely vindicated you. (laughs) So Tecton separates Siberian from Jack. Greyboy sees Jack's failure and immediately loops him in response and then starts cutting into him. Then Foil, who was just pretending to be looped and using her enhanced sense of timing from her power to make her scream sound correct each time, steps out from behind the frozen barrier and kills both Greyboy and the Siberian projection with darts. They won, Scott. They got Jack. Yes. What a great way to end this whole thing. What an unexpected, wonderful way. Like, I did, like... The, the the foil setup is so great you don't even see it coming it's like the the dragon's teeth person being the person like even outside of my love for containment foam my vindication that it's the most powerful thing ever and everyone should use it um it's just it's executed so so well yeah and it's such a cool just it's such a cool idea that this all this is all solved by a a human and a non-powered person it's yeah. just so fun. We don't even know this person's name, but they did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What are the numbers, Golem asked. Dinah, if you give me one more answer today, no response. And I remember that just making me physically ill at the time because I was like, no, no, no. Can't do this to me. <laughs> yeah, there's such this brief, this brief little moment of victory. And then we're followed by that. And, and like suddenly we realize that maybe that's, that's the problem with with relying on precog so much matt that maybe the actions you take to try to prevent the thing that was uh, predicted end up being the very things that cause the thing itself 
and it's brilliant. It's it's so great. Yeah, yeah. But turns out Tecton was close enough to hear Jack talking as he was being containment foamed. So they decide that um, Tecton will pick someone he trusts and run it by them. And who's he pick, Matt? He picks Golem because everyone trusts Golem because Theo is the fucking man. Yeah, I mean, I would tell Golem. I would tell him yeah, anything. Me too. Tecton leaned close. Doesn't make any sense. Nonsensical. He said... And then it and then it cuts off right there because Wildbow is mean. Um but but Matt, in this moment when he says it doesn't make any sense, nonsensical, in the back of your head, even if you don't quite remember it, you think of Golem's line from earlier in his first chapter that stupid, nonsensical things were sometimes the most important. And that's that's when you go Oh shit. Yeah. Oh, no. One of many times that you're going to say that yep. in the near future. Because what happens next is not something that you could possibly see coming. And I don't nope. know if I can do this chapter justice, honestly. This is one of my favorite narrative moments of all time. This is the culmination of practically almost all of the mystery and foreshadowing and buildup in the story. And it comes at the climax of this fever pitch ramping up of conflict and tension to an impossible level where we feel like we may have resolved everything, everything might be okay, and then suddenly the entity swims through the void and it remembers everything is stored dating back to the very beginning. And you're like, what? Oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this is... We've been doing this for over like 30 something episodes. We've been doing this for eight months and not once in this entire process have I felt more intimidated to cover a chapter than I do right now. Um, as we said at the beginning of it, part of it is I, I don't know what to say first. There's so many things happening. Part of it is I don't know what to say, period. Like there's, there's so many things. There's so many reveals. There's so much stuff and it's, it's like overwhelming, and I, so I'm, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to try to point out moments that I think best demonstrate Wildbow's skill as a writer. I'm going to try to put out moments that literally just like took my breath away. But I know that at the end of the day, in the, the 30 or so minutes we have left of recording this week, that we're just not going to do this chapter justice. So I'm just like, I guess I'm just trying to level set expectations here because it's, there's so much and we can't do it all. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we talked about this for like two hours today. We did. So, yeah. so yeah, we're, we'll we'll get we'll get the highlights. You're getting the highlight reel, guys. When we'll talk about it more in the Reddit and elsewhere. So <laughs> yeah. it's gonna have to be. So it turns out that we're watching an alien species, some kind of worm thing with an ability to move between dimensions as easily as they move through space. Struggles on their dying planet. The individuals fight for food and resources, but it's Malthusian. There's no victory. There's no thriving. It's a tangle. And this is the first arc name reference we get, although it's not the first name reference. That would be Worm, which precedes it. Yeah, I think this is as good a place as any to, to point out how much fun Wildbow is having with wordplay throughout this chapter. I mean, not just bringing in every single arc name back in, to our attention, which is, is great on its own, but he, he uses Worm a lot. He uses words like weave a lot, mm -hmm. Worm and weave and all these different things. And this chapter is such a culmination like 
not only is it that last chapter before we truly move into the third arc of the story, but it's Wildbo getting to reveal things that he's probably been keeping secret from people for like a million words. And I just like get the feeling as this stuff plays out that he's having such a great time writing it. And that's why he's putting all these little word things, these little word plays in here, these little subtle references, not just in the, the, the obviousness of the arc titles, but otherwhere he's just like, he's having fun. And I think that really shows. Yeah. And it's good to talk about that because I think most people appreciate the narrative aspect of this, but the language aspect I think is just as cool. Yeah, I agree. So the creatures decide as a group that they will all die if the status quo continues. So they agree to consume all the matter and energy at hand and blow themselves out into space. They need conflict and variation and they need resources. Yeah, and, and another thing that we're going to try to do as we go through this is a lot of the stuff that happens throughout this arc, um, not only is it explaining and, and we're learning the history of the passengers, the shards and what they are and how they got here. But we're also kind of like through them, we're kind of seeing the journey of the book so far because we're seeing a lot of the themes that the book has touched on throughout the, the journey of this entity and, and the conflict that defines its early lives, this, this pointless battle for resources, pointless squabbling over territory, over, over things and that and, and and that battling leaves everyone just a little bit weaker each time that it happens. And that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? That sounds a lot like the the cops and robbers game that we saw amongst the the capes, the the heroes and the villains of our early capes of our early book. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's all it's all there. The parallels are all are all there. And and I think we won't even get to talk about all the parallels that we that we that you could find here. Yeah. Yeah. So the surviving entities after destroying the planet are conglomerations of shards, and they soar into space. It's a gestation. Some survive, arriving at planets with life. The entities distribute their shards with their abilities to the life forms on the planet. And we see that it borrows of the conflict and stress of this new alien species. It borrows of the evolution of the learning of the crisis. In some ways, it is a symbiote. In others, parasite. Yeah. And, and so now this forced, this forced conflict. And again, like we've seen throughout the chapter, we, we, throughout the, the book, we've talked about this a few times, how it seems like these passengers, these shards are kind of forcing conflict. Things keep escalating. Like it feeds off of that conflict. And, and now suddenly it all makes sense. It all makes sense. They, 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 through conflict, they learn. And yeah. So does, so does Taylor. Yeah. And if you'll recall that, that review of worm that i wrote like what feels like a million years ago um one of the things i said about it was that worm is a superhero story but it's also a great science fiction story and ideas like this one where you have this alien creature that is borrowing from the conflict and the evolution of a host species for its own learning that is genuinely a science fiction concept that i have never seen anywhere else and it's really cool and i appreciate that a lot and it's one of the things that elevates this from excellent superhero drama to really incredible work of literature for me yeah and it's like I, the thing i i don't remember much of that review but i remember your thing about how in in most comic books in most superhero stories the people have powers because 
because yeah. like it just happens radioactive spider yeah. um this is this is infinitely more complicated infinitely more interesting infinitely more thematically rich it all ties together like the the conflict the fighting the 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 escalation the bullying all these things tie into the source of where this power comes from in such a fulfilling way it's so good yeah so then the entity encounters another of its kind and they share information they winnow their own shards mutate them evolve them using the knowledge they gained from the life forms then they consume all the energy from this planet destroying it and they move on uh-oh uh-oh yep uh-oh. <laughs> Getting to see a pattern. So the next planet hosts sentient life, and the entities learn from the technology of this race. These are aliens, which one imagines as being more like humans. Uh, they use the shards, the powers, for their own advancement. But then eventually they turn on the entities, and the entities learn the importance of obscuring their own nature. Ultimately, as always, they destroy this world too, and the pair of entities moves on. So what you're saying is like containment foam, like comes from a, a brilliantly advanced alien race um, from thousands upon thousands of years ago, and therefore is one of the greatest things yeah. ever invented. Yeah, I mean, hmm. uh, there's probably some alien race where that was like their main thing was just everything was containment foam. Well, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how successful that would be. They, they probably called themselves the the people of the Scott. That's I, you know. Head head cannoned. It's that's, yeah. that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I agree. And now, now I hate now I hate the entities even more because they killed my people. Yeah, they did. Yeah, I, you know we we never you never know you never know. So three thousand cycles later, three thousand worlds, thousands of sapient species driven to extinction, and this pair of entities have differentiated since then. They're they're not they're not male and female, but their life cycle. You know, it, it it has caused there to be two roles, a thinker and a warrior. Yeah, and, and we're about to in a few Senate, a few paragraphs to find out that the warrior is Scion. And I love that this kind of explains inherently why he's kind of like a dumb person, <laughs> because like he's not made to be the one that reasons and processes. He's the one that is fighting McGee guy. Yeah, um, he's not he's not for thinking. Yeah, right. And and we 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 see him strip himself down into something much smaller than he is at this point too. So they find a new world to test and they pick a particular dimension to focus on, Earth Bet. Can I just say that I am so happy we have a sci-fi fantasy superhero type story with no kind of prophecy or chosen one or any of that nonsense. Um the reason the entities came to Earth to this Earth was that it just seemed the best to sow conflict into and like earth bet is not special it's just really bad fucking luck yeah yeah it, it's only special in the sense that it's the worst available world where there were enough people to cause problems yeah pretty much congratulations yeah and 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 yeah and it's a very bad thing that people have superpowers it's not a yeah. it's not a happy thing right so as the warrior strategizes, it notes that its counterpart appears distracted. Uh, the counterpart encounters another entity in space and shares shards with it. But the partner appears to sacrifice too much in the sharing, uh, limping on but appearing to be distracted and suffering. 
Uh, I was absolutely riveted at this point. I was like, something's going wrong. Something went wrong in the cycle. Things are changing. Things. This is different from normal, which is always like the best part of stories take place where the thing that's happening is different from the way it normally does. That's like basic conflict and 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 narrative structure. But um, it's uh, it's good. Yeah, it's good. Right, and it's the only kind of thing that gives you any kind of like crack of of hope because yeah, you're like, no, these things have have been doing this for three thousand cycles. They're just going to steamroll us. But no, if there's some crack of like, oh, something different this time, then yeah, yeah, yeah. So the warrior further iterates on its strategy, getting little feedback from its partner. It experiments with erasing the memory of the trigger event, and then it gives that memory erasing shard to a young female. It sees that there is more to learn from younger organisms in doing this. They're more prone to conflict and they're less stable. Well, that explains all the teenagers. Yep. Uh, Here's one of the thousands questions I had during this whole thing. Are we supposed to know who this person is? Um, They mentioned that they're like being around someone and and on the verge of being like sexually assaulted or something. Like there's a guy pulling out his junk or something and then the person disappears from sight. But I, I wasn't sure. Well, if we were supposed to know, I think I think they don't disappear from sight so much as they make it so that the person can't remember that they exist. So are we are we are we supposed to think that's imp? I think is we that are. what we're supposed to think. I think okay. we are. I mean, it's it's ultimately it's kind of Easter eggy in the sense that it doesn't really matter whether you get that or not. Just like many yeah. things in this chapter, um, the, a few more that we'll talk about, I think. Um, but yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be imp. Okay. So and also you know remember when we, you uh when 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 we're in Amp's interlude she thinks about how sometimes her power seems to be doing things that have nothing to do with hiding her and I always refl- like when I reread that I was like oh yep yeah, it's it's just going around erasing trigger event memories that's what it's doing huh yeah that, yeah I mean that was my I mean yeah this this is kind of all you have to go on so that's that's what I assumed yeah. So as the warrior approaches Earth, it sheds almost all of itself, all but but a tiny, tiny fraction. Its shards are seeded into the world. It will take 331 years before enough information has been gathered and the cycle can proceed. The warrior worries about the partner. Its ingress seems chaotic, uncontrolled. The counterpart is not worried. Hey, there's that 300 years thing that the fairy lady was talking about. Um, so... <laughs> At this point, my ages ago prediction, I made this a long time ago, that this was kind of a, a, a science experiment is kind of right. Um, I mean, not like I got the details wrong and stuff, um, but I'm surprised at how close I was to the actual thing. I mean, it's it's I, I didn't quite mean it the way I said it, but it's pretty close. Yeah, I don't think you're the only one who's surprised by that, Scott. <laughs> no I, I think people are willing i think you know i've been following this, the spoiler comments ever since you said that i think people have been mm-hmm. willing to give you credit for that pretty much all along okay um the thing that i do find interesting here is that uh the entity does not bring up end bringers at any point in this process throughout the rest of this chapter scion the warrior does not bring up end bringers so this they were not created by him that's something i'm I'm putting up in here, yeah. I'm pointing to my brain for the people that okay. are hearing up on the audio. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I I feel like I noticed that too because I remember being like, "Oh, good, we're getting answers to all the mysteries," and and having that that thought of like, "Okay, we're gonna get the explanation for the inbringers." But 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 oh <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah. 
So yeah, the shards are assigned guidance on what hosts to pursue, but they're left to make up their own minds on the particulars. Physical harm renders a physical power, mental harm a mental one. Basically, it's just whatever serves the aim of insinuating the most conflict, maximizing the most learning. Yeah, and this um, this isn't new information for us. I think the people of, of Earthbed had reasoned this out a while ago, and we've known this information, but it just it just slots really nicely in here. It just fits. This puzzle piece fits perfectly in the overall image and just works here. And it's so uh, like it's so enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. So at the final stage, it checks the future for dangers one last time, and then it cripples that shard and sends it off to a small female. And and there's Dinah. So many things make sense now. Yep. That's Dinah with her crippled future shard. Explains why it works but doesn't fully work. Right. Explains the limitations. Explains why she can only do it a, few, a certain amount of times. It explains everything. Yep. And it's such a ridiculously powerful shard by itself that right. you, you you would you know you wouldn't trust that out in the world. Yeah. And uh, he uh, it, it rather um, it sends the last shard the the kind of kind of a very important one um cripples it and then sends it to a to a a male thin in the company of strong males and females drinking so this is this is taylor shard we will learn this in a few paragraphs um but that means that scion originally gave that thing to danny not taylor that's who i'm guessing the thin male is it's danny so danny had the potential to to trigger with this thing i guess but i guess the shard favored taylor for tampon locker related reasons um and that makes me wonder like how like by chance like by by horrible event it's it's all emma's fault (laughs) yeah yeah no totally yeah and another thing about that is we know that we know that master triggers attend uh, tend to occur in people who are isolated and even in this very scene of peeking in on Danny, he's in the company of, of people and they're drinking with him. They're trying to cheer yeah. him up. So, yeah, he's not alone. You're right. You're yep. right. Yep. Nobody's cheering up Taylor. Nope. Finally, the entity takes on its adult state, Imago. A body no more than a tendril of its former self is created. It waits but receives no transmission from the counterpart. Dead shards fall from the sky and it waits but eventually concludes that the, the counterpart is dead. In seeking to understand the host creatures, the entity had coded shards to emulate them. It is those same shards that experience the entity's first ever emotion, crushed. So how often do we talk about, well, we just had a whole conversation about dragon and the emulation of human traits. And if, if, those, if that emulation is so accurate, does it not just become a human trait? So he's he's emulating emotions here, but he's feeling them. And I think this is this is ironically the thing that leads to Scion's decision um in, in, at the end of of this whole thing that that the, the the little bit of humanity simulated or not in him frustrates him, angers him and leads him towards deciding what he does. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that the entity almost dismissively thinks about the emotions that it's feeling as it's just a simulation it's just a simulation but these are the things that drive so much of its behavior right right yeah so um the warrior's human component is found by people and it's it sees a shard fall uh failing to attack uh, attach to a host on the ship and so it repairs the man's cancer so that its own cancer can take root 
Yeah, and this is now we finally confirmed that the entity, the warrior, is Scion, the source of all the, the the shards of the passengers, and that's my speculation confirmed. Nailed it. Yep. Um and I, I actually I went back to the very first interlude to read it again because we, we of course have seen this scene play out from from the television and in Danny's first interlude, and we see that man cured from cancer just by being around Scion. And I remember not like not, not only does everyone else, but you at the time think this is some this is some sort of god, and he can cure cancer like just by being in his presence. And wow, he's saving people just by being around them. And and now we see this from the other angle that Scion wasn't saving this person. He he just was making it so his experiment worked better. Yeah. Um, and if this is like the final illusion of Scion being this benevolent force. Like we've slowly been chipping away at this throughout the book. The more we learn about him, and this is like the final chink for me that that this this defining moment of who Scion was in, in the first moment we see him in the book is now is now just gone. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's very important. I think that we went back and addressed that exact moment because it, it it does call back to like you said the first time that we hear about him. And recontextualizes that into a see. I can't even really say an evil motivation. I mean, it is mm -hmm. it is evil, I suppose, but that's imposing human morality on something that is so distant from humanity. Right. I mean, that's another thing. That's another science fiction thing that I really appreciate. Is these are really alien aliens um, right. in terms of being just difficult to comprehend what it is like to be them and it's it makes little sense to try to impute some concept of good and evil onto them because they're just they're just survival machines who have a really strange life cycle really yeah yeah the 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 existence of like bipedal creatures on a planet that live for 80 years or so is it doesn't even register like it's yeah. not it's it's totally meaningless to them right yeah and now it's the present a young female with with uh, his uh administrator shard approaches the last shard that he distributed and uh, she tries to stop him it's the queen and it's taylor um and i think it's like i like that it's called like i've called her queen b a few times throughout the story just because it seemed to fit like as she controlled and all this stuff and and now we've we've had Glastic call her Queen Administrator. We had I think Jack even called her the would be Queen, um, which she interpreted as something from from Cherish. Um, but now we got it here. It's confirmed. Taylor is that Queen shard, and we understand why she's so powerful because she was one of those core shards that was intentionally damaged because its true power would have been so ridiculous. So it makes sense here, um, and and. I wonder, it makes you wonder if this thing is, is damaged, is intentionally weakened, what could she do with it if it wasn't? And that gets me speculating. Yeah, I don't know, Scott. I mean, I don't know. So, uh, oh yeah, so so Taylor says, I know you want to help, but it's too dangerous. You're too strong, and the situation is fragile. It'll do more harm than good. More harm than good. Cyan accepted that as a given and decided to stay where he was. Um, and I, I love, I love that so much. I mean, it, go, it calls back <laughs> to what you just said about this being the last bit of, of eradicating any hope that, um, that, that, that he's a good guy because he's, he's just like, oh yeah, of course more harm than good. 
I'm here to kill all of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in the past, again, we're we're flipping back and forth through time, of course. Kevin Norton approaches the golden man and berates him for having the gall to be both sad and useless. Norton tells him to be useful. The warrior accepts this. It's at least a role he can play. Yeah, and how how similar is that to taylor's journey how throughout her journey she's been looking for purpose looking for a role and she finds it and she attaches herself to different things it was it was taking down the undersiders to join the heroes then it was saving dinah and then it was taking down echidna and then it became jack and the end of the world and she's been been latching on to a role and that's that's what scion does here is he's he's his experiment has failed the other half of him is dead he has no purpose anymore and and someone offers him a purpose an outside force offers him a purpose and he latches onto it and that's so much of of what we see our main character do yeah and it's it's somehow in line with both his nature as this you know crystal thing and yeah. and his nature as a human who who's just sad and demoralized it it serves a function for both of those aspects of himself So back in the present, the warrior observes the fight. The broadcast shard manipulates and interacts with everything around it, um, which we recognize the broadcast shard is is actually Jack's, and it's it's manifested in a very interesting way. Yeah. Then the warrior's trapped. Yeah, we see. So we see Jack's hidden power here. That that thing that's been hinted at for so long, kind of like a thinker power, but kind of not. And uh, and it's the broadcast shard, the one that allowed it to communicate with its other half. So. So Jack's power kind of itself allows it to communicate with other people's shards. And and now we understand why really the, the, the PRT member, the, the dragon's teeth, to, dragon's tooth, teeth? <laughs> the, the dragon guy um, was able to sneak up on it because he didn't have any powers. He didn't have a shard. Jack could not detect him. Jack could not see him. And And I think Jack has gotten so used to this this sixth sense that he had and 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 they say maybe he wasn't even conscious that he had this he just kind of had it that he he doesn't use his eyes and yeah. he's so reliant on that sixth sense um it's such a good it's just a good way to go in and explain exactly how this worked out why it worked out this way um it's god it's really good yeah it just stitches everything together so in the past again the warrior saves people from a burning building and one of the people asks his name and the warrior considers, um, and I, I just, I love this. The promised land could be this world at its climax, the shards at critical mass, the entity and its counterpart bridging about the end of the cycle. Uh, sorry, bringing about the end of the cycle. It could be utopia, as the entity understood the term. It could be the world at peace, people saved from hardship, as Kevin Norton had described it. Whether the entity was somehow able to return to its original task, or whether it continued carrying out Kevin Norton's answers, in an attempt to find itself, the term fit. Zion, it spoke. Yeah, the world to come, uh, it, the Eden, it makes sense. Like this, this, this utopia, this Eden that Zion and, and his counterpart, like, were going to achieve by ending the world, by killing yep. everyone. It's like, at this point of, of everyone's gonna be full power and happy together, and then you're all gonna die. And that is Zion. That is the promised land. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. That's, that's what's so, that's what's so wonderfully alien about it is he considers like a, a world at harmony and a world completely destroyed to be 
equivalent things basically right because they both appeal to different aspects of what he's potentially could be um so it, it observes the 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 battle some more watches gray boy's dead shard sees so many powerful shards present ripe with conflict i love that phrase it sees mm-hmm. contessa appear and the number man uh also they subdue all eight harbingers without much trouble and then they bring the survivors with them oh good that's that's great they got a bunch of number mans yep goody um yeah but so we see here that the dead shards are described are are all cauldron capes gray boy uh number man uh so so that kind of confirms this idea that i had that that cauldron um and i'm spoiling my speculation here but cauldron is is the one that found the counterpart the the other entity and has used its dead shards and and captured them into the for the formula somehow um but the interesting part about this one is Contessa's shard is not described as dead. It is, says very specifically that hers is a shard that does not belong to her, but is n- not dead. Um, that's interesting, and I haven't quite worked my way through that, but that's a, a, a very specific thing we point out here. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. It also observes this ancient weapon, Sting, this this way of, of penetrating things in all dimensions, which kills Grey Boy and pops the Siberian. Once it had been yeah. a weapon for his kind against this kind back in the beginning when they had dwelt in oceans of gray sludge. Against his kind, Matt. So for those of you scoring at home, Foil just possibly became the most important cape ever, <laughs> ever in this coming war. And that's not something I saw I saw coming at all. Yeah, I, 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 I love this this here because it, it reminds me of like a shark where you have like a shark is this perfect killing machine that's remained evolutionarily unchanged for hundreds of yeah. millions of years because it's so perfect yeah. and while, while all these shards have been refining themselves and evolving and, and iterating over time over thousands and thousands of worlds this, this sting shard is the same weapon from back <laughs> in the day because that's yep. it, it's the shark that's that's yep. how I think of it so we hear more of what Tecton tells Golem, uh, but I'm, I'm going to save Jack's speech for a minute because I just kind of want to have it all in one spot. So we skip over to Tattletale, and it looks like uh, it looks like uh, they've gone. Um, the, they they defeated Jack. Everything's fine. So she sends everybody home. People relax. Charlotte brings Aiden over and tells Tattletale that he triggered. He controls birds now. Yeah, and that's one of the things we didn't touch on, but we had learned earlier that Taylor Shard had fragmented and split off and gone into someone else. And and here here it is. It, I think it's pretty explicit here that that we have an innate and a slight variation on her power, controlling birds instead of bugs. But Taylor Taylor has a little shard baby. Aww. <laughs> so Charlotte asks about a drawing that she showed to Tattletail that Aiden had made, but Tattletail doesn't remember it. Charlotte insists and finds it for her and shows it to her. Um, and eventually, after some back and forth, Tattletale finally really looks at the picture with Aiden explaining what it is. And this is enough for her power to finally build around the mental block. And she remembers, like viruses, like gods, like children, like viruses infecting a cell, converting it into more viruses, bursting forth to infect again, like gods, so much power, all gathered together, all powers stem from them. Like children, innocence, blank slate, <laughs> and and she figures it out in this moment. She figures it out, and all she can say, all any of us can say, is "Oh balls, oh balls." 
Oh, balls. Yeah. That reminds me, this is the most wonderful, um, this whole arc actually is one is wonderful on the um, audiobook, and this this chapter in particular has a lot of a lot of line reads that I that I think are are fantastic and O balls is one of them. <laughs> Saint, awesome. So, so at this point, Saint, uh, we skip over to Saint, who's watching over everything, finally relaxing a bit when Tattletale bulldozes through the security systems to talk to him. Um, she unfortunately can't answer the question, which has to do with the ten by ten game that. Uh, that uh, Defiant and Dragon used to play together. <laughs> they they realize that Cyan can hear Jack, uh, so uh, Saint contacts Defiant to try to ask for help. Ah, uh, so the story a- allows you to figure out that that Cyan is the one that Jack talks to, kind of before the characters do. So yeah. we kind of see this, and yet this whole little part here is filled with so much tension. There's frantic scrambling. Saint reaches out to Defiant for help defiant these two guys fucking hate each other but in this desperation they reach out together and work together in this desperate attempt this final last ditch effort we have to stop it we have to stop it now oh it's so good yeah you can sense the desperation it's it's incredible so they they do they they succeed to the extent that they they finally set and they broadcast a message to her over loudspeakers of from her over loudspeakers hoping that she can counter what jack is saying that she can convince scion of, of something different she tells him not to listen and, and to leave and and the entity does it flies around the world and it contemplates what the broadcaster said that was close i mean we all oh oh fuck yeah and, and i'm gonna read i'm gonna read the whole jack speech in one go because the way it's delivered in in the chapter is wonderful because it's it's spread out in a way where you're gradually more and more understanding what's going on and gradually more and more understanding what's about to happen. Um, but because we already, already understand that, um, I just want to say it all at once so that we can analyze it. So what he says is just you and me, I wish I had better company, but I'll take what I can get. Ironic that you're so boring. I bet you think you're noble. You're not. You're uglier than any of us. Sparky. I always hated the blank slates. Never that interesting. Never created art. Never created variation. You're worse than most. I'm not Darwinist. None of that bullshit. I'm... I think it's simple. Simpler. Us monsters and psychopaths, we gravitate toward predation because we were originally predators. Originally had to hunt. Had to be brutal, cruel, in order to survive. Violence was what made us or broke us back in the beginning. What I don't understand is why a blank slate like you would default to doing good deeds, rescuing cats from trees. Why not turn to that violence, as our ancestors did? It drove them, just like it drives the basest and most monstrous of our kind. In hearing this, the warrior concludes that it would have come to these conclusions eventually anyway. Doing good deeds has done nothing for the entity. And and it goes and it thinks to itself, seeking out alternatives wasn't even in the realm of imagination because imagination was something it lacked. It had power, though, and if either the counterpart or the cycle had been intact, they could have filled in for that imagination. Still, it could experiment. It gathered its power, then aimed at the nearest, largest population center, Kevin Norton's birthplace. The entity did not eliminate the smoke or the waves that followed. It simply let the aftermath occur. The simulated human mind within the entity felt a glimmer of something at that. Pleasure? 
relief, satisfaction, something deeper inside, something primal, tied to memories back in the beginning, before the beginning, responded in a very similar fashion. The entity extended its perceptions outward, felt the reaction, the outcry. It turned words around in its head, as if it were broadcasting to itself. Scourge. Extermination. Extinction. That last one was the one to fit. In this, it almost felt like it was evolving as an individual, moment to moment. The entity opened fire once again, and this time it struck out at the coastline on the opposite side of the ocean. So that's... I think that's the longest stretch I've read of anything in this book so far, but... Yeah, I, but I didn't... I I couldn't interrupt you in that. I couldn't. It's just um, so powerful to me. Yeah, it, it is. Like, every part of it, and it's such, like, from from Jack's speech echoing back to the first thing we saw him say the first time we saw him he talked about the blank slate about tabula rasa and, and how much he hated it um and that's why he didn't like oni lee right that's why he rejected oni lee right. it was boring so it, everything everything ties back so his his point of view makes sense his like reasoning has a certain fucked up horrible logic to it and and so does scions in a way because like this idea that like go back to the beginning back when we were when we were just cruel things trying to survive we've seen that that was the start for the entities too these all-powerful all-knowing things were at some point just creatures killing each other just to survive and and that makes sense to it on a primal level it even points that out the, the primal satisfaction it feels from from going back to its violent origin yeah and and this primal satisfaction that that a that a creature feels on exerting its its power through violence on other beings. We have a name for that in the schoolyard. <laughs> what what is it? What is it, Matt? It rhymes with smullying. I I don't I can't I can't guess it. Okay. I can't guess it. No, well. you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That comes back to it like Scion has just become the world's biggest bully and it's like everything coming together in this wonderful moment, this wonderful end. We, we've this game changing end of the arc, this game changing end of this part of the story. We're moving into the end. We're setting all this up and it's so satisfying. Yeah. Um, so that, so that's, that's that, that's that arc. That's, uh, yeah, that's that one of my favorite, that. one of my, I mean, it's weird because the first time, you read it, you're feeling so many things. And I've read this so many times and I've, I've like been appreciating it for so long that I'm almost overly like academic about it, but I'm, I'm still capable of feeling all the, the same feelings again. And I think that's the sign of really good writing that it doesn't, that the feelings don't attenuate over time. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right that this, this, I mean, I, I obviously did not have that experience, but I, I can see myself, reading this again in a year in two years and still feeling like I did this first read through, which was um, like floored with every word, like riveted to the page. Um, I don't think I tweeted too much during this one when I was doing my live tweet. Cause I was just like, I was just in it. Yeah. And like, I didn't want to tear my eyes away from the screen to con construct a, a funny tweet. I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. Cause I'm just here. Yeah. Well, and it's a very different kind of chapter than, than we're used to. It's yeah. a lot of information in a very, very unusual perspective. Um, so, yeah. 
So yeah, we wanted, before we completely wrap up, we wanted to talk a little bit about some comparisons between different takes on the, you know, godlike savior superhero archetype. Um, yeah. And, and I had, I had kind of just thrown out to Scott earlier, like, Hey, you know, it's interesting to to contrast this, this character with Superman and with Dr. Manhattan. Um, yeah. So yeah, Scott, why don't you open up that? Can of worms. Y'all may, y'all may talk about Superman. Talk okay. about Superman, Scott. I think I think I think we talked about this way back near the beginning, um, but Superman as an all powerful entity is almost entirely defined by Clark Kent, by the upbringing he had with his parents, um, his moral compass, his, his his morality, his sense of right and wrong was created not as an all powerful god but as a kid living on a small farm in the middle in middle America. So this is core to him. He has a, a level of humanity and a level of morality that is, is extremely different from, from someone else. And I think you even said that depending on the lore of Superman that you're, you're going off of most Kryptonians are seen as bad are, are seen as, as violent and like ruling gods that are cruel because they don't understand they they're more like scion but superman is is unique in his humanity and that's very different from scion who has a touch of humanity just like the emotion of it the the the, the thing like the, the the most kind of primal version of it but not enough humanity to develop the the moral side of humanity to understand that right and wrong difference and so it's like he got all the the bad parts about being a human being and none of the good ones. Yeah, yeah, it, it seems like it. And and I think Dr. Manhattan is another um take on this where he's I suppose somewhere between the two or or a different spin on it where he he was just a normal human, um uh, but he was given this godlike power and and the longer he existed with that godlike power the less human he became and the less he was able to relate to humans. Um, and ultimately he just sort of ultimately, I think ceases to be human more or less. Um, and, and, yeah. and just stops caring about human concerns altogether. So these are, I think these are interesting, different perspectives on potential paths of, of having ultimate power like this. Yeah. And Dr. Manhattan is really interesting to me because, um, I mean, Watchmen itself is kind of exists as a deconstruction of all these things. So Dr. Manhattan serves as a, if someone were like Superman, even if they had a human sense of morality, a human sense of right and wrong, they would eventually get to this point where they lose touch with that because their power is so great. Um, but I mean, you also have to reckon with the fact that Dr. Manhattan um, earned his powers so late, like Superman learned his moral code while having a certain amount of his power um, where Dr. Manhattan existed as a person and then became this powerful thing and almost only seemed to like increase in power from there. So while I, I understand they're common on each other, it is a little different. And, and Scion, you're right. I think kind of is the far, far end of the spectrum where the, 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 the level of humanity it, it has is so minute, so simulated as it were that it, it, it doesn't even operate on our, uh, our black and white right or wrong moral spectrum yeah and i think one final thing about dr manhattan that comes to mind is it's not even so much the godlike power as the fact that he perceives all time and space to be simultaneous 
yeah, which yeah. is like would be so destructive to your sense of yourself as a as a human being. Um, so th- that's completely aside from the fact that he can like you know do anything he wants with you know manipulating matter. Um, yeah, and 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 if I if I recall, like he's not like he's trying to hold on to his humanity, but it's just so such a smaller part of the larger whole that like he's he, he's not like intentionally doing it. he's not like like greedily saying like uh humans are stupid blah 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 it's just like it's slipping away because it's such an insignificant thing as compared to the scope of him as at large yeah. which i think is very similar to scion yeah i think you're right yeah okay i think that's that's good um let's move on from talking about the arc to a little tiny bit of name game so we had mentioned that we 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 actually forgot a name that we wanted to talk about, and it's kind of funny that we forgot this one. So it's just this one this week, and that name is Nice Guy. <laughs> so what significance does that have in the story, Matt? Yeah. So so we've mentioned a number of characters in the story: Cody, uh, Kraus, Greg, probably some others that are that are not at the tip of my tongue who fit into this this archetype that is called the nice guy which i think we've explained before basically it's 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 almost a sarcastic use of a nice guy it's it's yeah. a guy who whose niceness is almost like a facade or a shield that he puts up to hide his underlying insecurity and desperation yeah um, in this case nice guy is a villain whose power is somewhat like imps in that it's impossible to perceive him as a threat which is <laughs> pretty much what the nice guy archetype is about yep it's it's like a a literal manifestation of that archetype it's it's really great yeah yeah that's that's all yeah that's it (laughs) (laughs) i just wanted to talk about that yeah Yeah. all right scott my favorite part let's do some speculations all right matt we have a a ton of old ones to close up here because it turns out that this arc was filled with a lot of information Mm -hmm. granting um so first number one I said that Cauldron not only knows about the passengers, but they created them. Well, that's wrong. That was the entities. That was Scion. So wrong. Wrong me. Okay. Um, I also said the end of the world will be caused by Jack uh, waking up the passengers early. That was when I was trying to tie into my science experiment thing that they were actually asleep and they were going to wake up at some point. Um, No, that's not. That was that was wrong. I kind of changed my mind about that one. Like months ago but uh i really couldn't couldn't do anything about it until it was proven wrong yeah fair enough um i said jack slash will mess with lisette will will convince lisette who will order scion to destroy and the world uh close close but not not quite yeah not quite people really like that prediction though because it's a pretty clever idea even though that's not what happens yeah. It's it's connecting a lot of the right dots because Lizette yeah. is involved. She's in the scene, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But not enough, not enough for me to give it to me. Yeah. Um. So this next one is my long, my long, long one where I said the passengers or the things that make them are performing a three hundred year science experiment. They seed our planet with the potential for trigger events and observe and report as we destroy ourselves. If not enough people are triggering, they send down endbringers who attack separate locations and cause enough devastation to induce triggering. But don't rampage and destroy the world outright. How Scion and Cauldron fits into all this, I don't know yet. Um, <laughs> I know part of that now. 
Uh, so yeah, again, this is, I got details of this wrong. I got the Endbringers part wrong because as I said, we, we did not, uh, we did not specify the end. The Endbringers were not mentioned in this chapter at all. So that part is wrong, but I think, I think I'm close enough, man. I'm close enough. Yeah, I would say we can tentatively give it to you and, and we can review. I think, I think there've been a few where we've been like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give it to you for now. And then when everything's all over, we'll, we'll see if all the details really fall in line the way you think they do. Um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty that's confident fair. giving it to you for now. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, number five, I said Scion is a passenger, the passenger. Um, yeah. Yeah. Correct. I mean, he's one of two, but you know, it counts, counts. Yeah, yeah, and and I think you know it, it's interesting because the fandom uses the word shard like exclusively, pretty much. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's actually actually been impressive to me that people are are able to consistently use passenger in in our <laughs> Reddit threads because they only ever use shard elsewhere. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's 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 because passenger is a word that makes more sense if you're thinking about it as being something that pertains to humans, but really it's the humans are the incidental part as far as the entities are concerned yeah okay i will i will shift over to using shard from now on though i will do that okay well either way (laughs) all right and lastly um i made a whole bunch of death predictions last week um i said at least one of the dragon's teeth revel parian and golem and as far as we know i literally got zero of these correct (laughs) we don't know what happened to revel necessarily but we did not see revel die and i kind of meant in this battle in this pursuing thing uh wow i read that (laughs) read that really wrong well Um, yeah that's okay i mean things did not unfold the way i thought they were going to obviously i mean that's the problem with conjunctively complicated predictions where you have to predict a b c and d it becomes less and less likely the more clauses you add but that's true. Yeah. But I wanted I wanted to go big. I People know. asked me to go big, so I did it. We appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, my my new ones, um the one I kind of hinted at already, my guess is that that Cauldron or or Dr. Mother herself um prior to founding Cauldron discovered Scion's counterpart, the dead entity and used its corpse to engineer the vials seen in all the Cauldron capes. Um the the shards remaining on it or or what have you. Um, so that's number one. Um, number two, I, this is pretty heavily, I mean, it's, it's not totally heavily hinted at, but we get, we get this, we have Scion, this, this seemingly unkillable, all powerful being. We know they can die because we've seen its counterpart die. Um, and we know that there's this weapon, this ancient weapon that they used to kill each other. And we know that one of our, our capes has it. So I'm going to say that foil, foil, flechette is going to kill Scion at the end of this thing. That she will strike the blow that kills Scion. So that's number two. All right. Awesome. Uh, good stuff, as always. And that will wrap up our coverage of Arc 26, Sting. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can uh, reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. There's 280 characters now, so your your angry tweets at me can be extra long. Um, my personal Twitter is at scottdale85, and Matt's is more falafel... Yep. More than a mail Statham this week. 
Um, <laughs> if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week on the Daily Planet Podcast, Matt and I watched Thor Ragnarok and discussed how much we enjoyed it. Um, you can see this and all the other podcast shows we do over on that feed. Go check them out. Also, another friendly reminder that our Daily Planet book club for this month is meeting this Friday, November 10th at 930 Central Time. We're talking about Carrie. It's a short book, so if you haven't started it somehow, there's still time. Uh, I read it in one setting the first time I read it for this, so it's possible. Still time. Still time to read it and join us. Yeah, and it's really good. As someone who had never yeah. read it before, it is surprisingly it is. good, actually. It is very good. So yeah, if you like any of, of those shows and you want to support them, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new planeteers, Tobias, Tassia, and Joshua, all at the $1 level, and Captain's Planet, uh, Bobby, and Quarter at the $10 level. You know, I think we got a bunch more people just before this podcast dropped. We we'll did. Get, we got we'll get... five or six new people yeah. right before we did the recording, and we hadn't put them into the script yet. Um, we'll do all of them next yes, week. Yes, we will hit We're you. We're going to get you guys. That's right. We'll hit you up next week. Yeah. Uh, also, speaking of Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildbo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys so much for all the support. It's incredible to see it. I, I'm so thrilled that you guys are liking what we do here. Um, and this, this Matt is normally the part of the podcast where I say something funny and clever and then go to iTunes and read one of our reviews by our listeners. But guess what? As I warned you all last week, we don't have any new ones. So this is the part where I sit here awkwardly and beg you guys to hop on over to iTunes and rate and review us. Please do it. It really, it really does help. I really like reading all the nice things you guys say, and, and it does the, the more reviews we have, the more the podcasts get no, noticed on iTunes and, and all the other feeds. Um, and that brings more people to it, which could bring more people to Worm, which is always good because this book is awesome. That's right. And uh, that's it for us this week. Next week, we'll be covering Arc 27 Extinction. Scott, any guesses as to what's going to happen? S seriously? What will happen in the Arc called Extinction? <laughs> Hmm. I'm just going to need to use all my brain for yeah. this one. Okay, well, we will find out next week another exciting episode of We've Got Worm. 